Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Yüksek this is the aftermath of what we reported yesterday, our breaking news. Good morning, everyone. As you can see, there are countless people still trapped under those piles that you looked at of rubble and screaming out for help across Turkey and Syria. The staggering death toll topping 5,000. After the catastrophic earthquake, we're going to take you live to the disaster zone and the massive rescue operation underway. And I'm live on Capitol Hill this morning, where tonight President Biden is going to deliver his first State of the Union address since Republicans took control of the House. It's a major moment, and he's going to use it to make his sales pitch for the re-election campaign he's expected to launch soon. We'll have a full preview of what to expect at tonight's State of the Union. CNN has new and exclusive reporting that a Chinese spy balloon flew across Florida when Donald Trump was president, but did his administration know? And we'll take you live this morning to Ohio for a closer look at the tense and ongoing battle to keep a toxic and fiery train wreck from exploding. But we're going to begin with that desperate race to save hundreds of people who are still trapped and screaming for help under piles of rubble across Turkey and Syria. The sheer scale of disaster of this disaster is overwhelming. More than 5,000 people now confirmed dead. Rescue teams still have thousands upon thousands of collapsed buildings and homes like these to search through. A warning now, you may find this video disturbing. That is a woman under a heap and heap of concrete crying out for help. Help, help, she's saying. Well, this man says that he can hear his mother and father in the rubble, but there is no way to reach them. Elite search and rescue teams from around the world, including the U.S., are rushing to that scene. So much death, so much despair. But there are moments of hope there, like this one. You'll see a small girl crawling on her hands and knees out of a collapsed building into the arms of rescuers. Straight now to CNN's Dick Payton Walsh, live on the ground in Turkey near the earthquake zone. Nick, hello to you. It's freezing there. Multiple aftershocks are slowing down rescue efforts. What's the latest? Yeah, absolutely. Turkey, the region, not seen anything like this in 100 years. Not just the 7.8 initial shock and then the 7.5 one that followed about 24 hours ago uh, from when I'm talking, but uh, the sheer kind of weather we're dealing with here, horizontal snow, people trapped under the rubble of buildings. Here in Turkey, there's a massive rescue effort underway, piling down the road here in Kathmaran Marash region where I'm standing, across the border in Syria, so much fewer resources available. Here's what we've been learning. Night blanketed the destruction with freezing temperatures. Flash nights, fires reveal an unwavering operation. Rescuers with only their bare hands, listening for faint voices, 
of survivors trapped under the homes. The magnitude 7.8 earthquake killed and injured thousands in Turkey and Syria and left thousands more homeless, sifting through the dust for what's left of their lives. We barely escaped from inside the house. We have four children and we left the house with them at the last moment. I guess there were several people trapped inside. It was a huge disaster. Our situation is very bad here. We are waiting without water or food. We are in a miserable state. The clock is another enemy here, along with the bitter cold. Aid is pouring in from all over the world. Rescue dogs to sniff for signs of life and trickling into Syria, ravaged by a decade of civil war. The first rays of dawn sunlight bring warmth and reveal the true scale of the devastating earthquake the strongest this region has seen in nearly a century. Dozens of powerful aftershocks mean the buildings still standing tall could come crumbling any time. Now, Don, the effort here is really just trying to get going. You can still see the horizontal snow, and that is hampering simply the ability for Turkish agencies to get to the main earthquake zones. And down the road here in Karamarash, uh, clearly aid is trying to trickle in, but it's hampered by these weather conditions. It is a race about getting people out from under that rubble while they still are essentially alive here in these awful conditions, Don. The region simply hasn't seen anything like this for decades, and it is utterly startling to see those images and imagine how much worse things will be with uh, the significantly fewer rescue resources across the border in Syria. Nick Payton Walsh reporting live from Turkey this morning. Thank you, Nick. Also this morning, President Biden is gearing up to deliver his second State of the Union speech and his first before a divided Congress. The president is expected to tick through his administration's accomplishments and future agenda all before a Republican House speaker over his left shoulder who is determined to block it. The speech is also expected to offer a glimpse at his messaging as he approaches a re-election announcement that we're expecting soon. CNN's MJ Leave is live at the White House. MJ, you know, how has the president been preparing for this? I know he was at Camp David for a bit over the weekend. What are we expecting tonight? Well, Caitlin, this speech has already been weeks in the making. We, of course, expect final touches to be made today. And yesterday, the president said that he really sees the speech as an opportunity to talk to the American people and have a conversation with them. Uh, we, of course, expect him to paint an optimistic picture of the progress over the last two years on everything from the economy to COVID to some of his legislative accomplishments. But it is going to be so much more than just a typical recap of the progress that the country has made. This will be one of the most politically significant speeches that the president has given because it will serve as a preview, a dry run almost, of his re-election announcement that we do expect to come sometime in the next several weeks. So uh, not only will it be a looking back at the last two years, but he certainly is expected to paint sort of an affirmative picture of the next two years. Of course, one of the challenges, Caitlin, that he faces is that at this moment in time, a majority of the country doesn't actually believe that the president has accomplished much uh, over the last two years. So he certainly has a lot of people to win over right now as well. Yeah. And one of the major differences that we're going to see tonight is the person sitting behind him. Of course, we all remember when former President Trump would come up here and give his speeches. Pelosi would be behind him. Now it's going to be McCarthy. And what are you hearing about how McCarthy plans to respond 
to the president's speech. Yeah, for the very first time, we will see House Speaker Kevin McCarthy sitting behind President Biden uh, in this setting. And actually, we've already heard from him. He gave a pre-buttle of sorts yesterday on one of the major issues that the two men have already clashed on. And that is, of course, on raising the debt ceiling. Uh, Kevin McCarthy saying in a speech that it would be irresponsible to raise the debt ceiling uh, without getting in return some major spending cuts, uh, though he didn't put on the table a specific proposal, any specific cuts uh, that he wants to get from Democrats. Uh, now, this, of course, is seen as sort of an attempt to try to get the president back at the negotiating table, though the president and the White House have made very clear that on this issue, they are not negotiating. But again, uh, just a reminder for the entirety of the speech of the very different political environment that the president uh, is facing over the next two years compared to the last two years. Yeah, you won't be able to ignore it. MJ Lee live at the White House. Thank you so much. Well, CNN has exclusive new reporting indicating that U.S. military officials did know about China's use of these spy balloons under the Trump administration. An Air Force intelligence report published last April mentioned spy balloon sightings in Hawaii and Florida before President Biden took office. It still remains unclear this morning exactly when, though, U.S. officials first became aware of those and... The public is now just learning about it. This comes as a parade of Trump administration officials have denied knowing anything about previous intrusions. Listen to what President Biden said when asked if the latest incident changes U.S.-China relations. No. We've made it clear to China what we're going to do. They understand our position. We're not going to back off. We did the right thing. And there's not a bad question of weakening or strengthening. It's just reality. Our Carlos Suarez joins us now from South Carolina, from the coast to be exact, because they are in the ocean trying to gather all of this debris that is miles and miles wide. How are those recovery efforts going? Well, Poppy, good morning. Military officials say that the recovery effort out here uh, is uh, seeing a good deal of progress. Uh, recovery teams have been able to narrow that debris field, and we're told uh, that they've been able to clear much of the debris that's at the surface of the ocean a few miles off the coast of South Carolina. We're told that crews spent much of yesterday using equipment to scan the bottom of the ocean to get a better sense of some of the larger pieces of this balloon that remain in some pretty shallow water. We're told that the balloon itself, well, it was 200 feet tall and that the payload, what it was carrying, was the size of a regional jet. Now, we're just 21 miles north of that main debris site at an area where the Navy has prepositioned equipment as well as some personnel, all in an effort to try to get this done over the next couple of days. Yesterday, we were here and we spotted a crew with the uh, uh, Navy's uh, salvage and dive team. And so the hope is they're gonna be able to get a lot of this done uh, relatively soon. Poppy? Okay, we'll be watching. Carlos, thank you very much for that reporting. Don. Microsoft Outlook facing big problems this morning. Users couldn't send and receive emails after a major outage last night. The company said it was investigating issues with its 365 platform and tweeted this, quote, a recent change is contributing to the cause of impact. We're working on potential solutions to restore availability of service of the service. It is unclear how widespread the outage is, but it appears emails are slowly starting to come back. A neo-Nazi leader and a woman under arrest in Baltimore this morning accused of planning to attack the power grid and completely destroy the city. Officials allege the plot was driven by ethnically and racially motivated extremist beliefs. Brandon Russell and Sarah Clendaniel are charged with conspiracy to damage energy facilities. The FBI says the two had a personal and online relationship.
Russell provided instructions and location information. He described attacking the power transformers as the greatest thing somebody can do. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, Russell's group wanted to usher in the collapse of civilization. We have more details later on in the show. Well, this morning, people from East Palestine, Ohio, are wondering when they're going to be able to go home. Officials ordered them to evacuate ahead of the controlled release of a toxic chemical that could explode. The operation sent a giant plume of black smoke into the air as vinyl chloride was drained from five cars in a fiery train derailment. Our Jason Carroll is live in East Palestine, Ohio, with more. That has got to be terrifying to know that that's happening right by your home. Yeah, absolutely terrifying. And a lot of evacuees are now wondering when they're going to be able to go home. More testing needs to be done before that can happen. I mean, Poppy, we're standing about a mile and a half from uh, where it all happened, and the acrid smell of smoke is still really apparent. But despite all that, uh, state officials say that the effort here was successful. It started with a thunderous boom, and then a huge plume of thick black smoke that could be seen for miles. This was the moment officials in East Palestine, Ohio, had been planning for. A controlled release of toxic chemicals from several train cars at the site of a derailment, one that has forced thousands from their homes. And all the way around, everybody's frustrated and like to go home. The decision to conduct a controlled release came just days after the train derailed in the rural Ohio community, sparking a massive fire. As the blaze continued to burn through the weekend, concerns quickly escalated. That's because five of the train cars carried the chemical vinyl chloride, an unstable material with the potential to explode, shooting deadly shrapnel up to a mile away and releasing toxic fumes into the air, according to state officials. The governors of Ohio and Pennsylvania ordered evacuations for a one-mile by two-mile area surrounding the town, which sits on the edge of East. Eastern Ohio. The controlled release of the toxic chemicals also has the potential to be deadly if inhaled. Ohio's governor also warned those in the evacuation zone that if they did not leave, some risk not only arrest but also severe injuries like burns and serious lung damage or even death. Then around 4.38 p.m. local time Monday, officials simultaneously detonated explosives on five train cars. During that detonation, our crews that were out there did observe two of the cars did polymerize. So we were able to control the release where we wouldn't have been if we didn't take this action. I'm very pleased. NS and all of our partners are very pleased on what took place. Uh, the detonation went perfect, uh, and we're already to the point where the cars are being became safe. They were not safe prior to this. Now residents are waiting to learn when they'll be allowed to return home. But the mayor says they still don't have a time frame. We just ask everybody to stay out. We, we still don't know. We have to wait till the fires die down. Hopefully in the morning, when daylight, we have some more answers. But some displaced residents say they're frustrated. But what they say is a lack of answers. My fiance has two disabled daughters and we're trying to get home. And we all, we're all trying to get home, basically, honestly. Um, but it's, it's kind of, because we can't get direct answers because nobody knows. Jason, I mean, 
I got to speak for our viewers here. I think everyone's watching this, making sure, wanting to know, are you okay? Are you in a, a safe area if those folks can't be there? Well, look, um, we, we were standing here at the command center, again, about a mile and a half from the site, so in a safe zone. But you know, I have to be honest, when we were looking at that huge plume of smoke growing and growing, again, this was a controlled breach, as what they're calling it. I mean, I was standing next to some firefighters, and I was asking them, I said, is this what it's supposed to look like? Because this looks really big. And, you know, Poppy, they said, yes, this is what it's supposed to look like, and this is actually better much better than it would have been if those if those trailers or if those trains had exploded on their own. They said it would have been much, much worse. Wow. wow. Jason, be careful yeah. out there. Thank you so much. Ahead, uh, what are some policies that President Biden could propose that everyone could just get along about, right? What would get bipartisan support? We're going to talk about that with our senior political analyst, John Avalon. Can't we all just get along, Can't John? we? Can't we? <laughs> More CNN this morning to come after the break. President Biden is set tomorrow to deliver his State of the Union address, and it's not a great sign that the best he can say is the state of our union is balloon free. The president is set to deliver his State of the Union speech tonight, and he is facing some major headwinds, I guess. Unintended, maybe. Uh, he's facing a split Congress. So where can both sides agree here? Joining us now, CNN senior political analyst, Mr. John Avalon, and one of the biggest issues right now, raising the debt ceiling. So you're standing next to the wall. So what are the numbers? Let's here, play sir? with the wall here. All right. So this is just a reminder that we are not as divided as it sometimes seems in Washington. But here's an area where there's actually pretty broad agreement. We should not default on our debt. Raise the debt ceiling. 68% of Americans say raise the debt ceiling if it means defaulting on our debt. That's a pretty clear majority. Doesn't mean it's going to translate to Congress, but that's something that Biden's going to try to rally around. That's a strong I was on a Zoom with the White House yesterday, sort of Brian Deese previewing the speech tonight on the economic front. And he said, look, he's feeling good about the economy, but he talked about how the president will emphasize tonight middle out growth and not trickle down growth. But it's all moot. If we default, that would be the biggest self-inflicted fail imaginable in terms of the macro economy. But Biden historically has been focused on the middle class and he can point to some numbers, but, you know, some progress on inflation. But that's still really shaping people's perceptions about what needs to be done. Yeah, he's going to focus heavily on Ukraine. Of course, overwhelming bipartisan support for foreign policy, foreign policy. Yes, this is important to remember because there's a cadre of folks on the far right who really don't like that. But take a look at this. Fifty three percent of Republicans say we should be supporting Ukraine. Fifty nine percent of independents, 81 percent of Democrats. That's as opposed to sort of end the conflict quickly and let Russia keep their gains. So that's, again, an area where there's majority support to draw upon, lest we forget. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Can we talk about police reform? Because yeah. we have the George Floyd, right? And then Tyree Nichols that happened a couple of weeks ago uh, in Memphis. What is the pulse of the nation when it comes to reform? By the way, Tyree Nichols' uh, parents will be at the State of the Union. That's exactly right. And that's an indication this is going to be a major part. Look, we saw police reform stall the last Congress. Senator Tim Scott working on that with uh, Senator Booker. But here, here, look at this. 47% of Americans say major changes needed in police uh, procedures. 42% say minor changes needs. Only 11% of Americans say really nothing needs to be done. That's so really interesting. It is. And it shows there's really a place for a compromise to occur. It may not be a maximalist bill, but there is yeah. super majority support for making reforms in police procedures. Immigration, the border. Yeah, this is always a big one. The reality check here is that 68% of Americans across the board disapprove 
of the current status at the border. This is an area where Joe Biden's going to need to deal with border security. He's going to probably frame it in larger immigration reform. But this is an area that he is playing, his administration is playing defense on. Here's what's interesting. In early January, he announced new rules of the border, basically tightening up restrictions. 60% of Americans approve of that directional move. So that's an indication where he could probably cobble together some support if he moves more to the middle and tries to find a way to work with Republicans on border security. There is a real divide here when it comes to, I think, um, how Americans feel about regulating big tech. What is it? Is there a lack of consensus? What's going on? So this is fascinating. And this is something that Biden's been leaning into, his advisors are into, the idea that we need to regulate big tech for issues like uh, privacy, dealing with protecting children, a really major emerging issue as well as defending our democracy. Here's what's fascinating. A year ago or so, this was a majority support issue. Over the last year, Republican support has eroded for regulating big tech. It's down to 44%. This is still an issue where Biden's leading into it. A big Wall Street Journal op-ed. We can expect it to play a major role tonight. But actually, it's gone from majority support to just underwater over the last year. Why? I think it's in part Elon Musk taking over Twitter, Donald Trump, Republicans no longer being in the White House and saying big tech's attacking them unfairly. But this had been an issue of major bipartisan support. My guess, there's still bipartisan support in the Senate. They don't want a regulation on lies? Is that what's happening? I I think Section 230 and responsibility for lies and accountability. And and, and the biggest bipartisan is how do you protect kids and how do you protect privacy? Hope they do something. Okay. John, very good. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. So make sure you join Anderson Cooper, Jake Tapper for our live coverage. President Joe Biden's State of the Union address tonight on CNN. It starts at 8 p.m. Eastern. And up next, we're going to bring you the latest in the Alex Murdoch trial What one woman who saw Alex around the time of the murders, what she has to say, she was in court. That's great. This morning, the Alec Murdoch double murder trial will resume after eye-opening testimony yesterday from the woman who saw Murdoch minutes after the murders of his wife and son. The caretaker for Murdoch's mother says he explicitly told her he was at his mother's house for 30 to 40 minutes at night, but she testifies that is not what happened. Our Randy Kay joins us live again this morning in Walterboro, South Carolina. How important was it, Randy, for her to be on the stand? Uh, It it was really important, Poppy, and it was uh, quite moving because she was very, very emotional. But today in court, Poppy, we expect to hear much more about Alec Murdoch's alleged financial crimes. The judge has ruled that the jury can hear all about those. And that was a huge blow to the defense because it speaks to motive. The prosecution says that Alec Murdoch killed his wife and son to prevent those alleged schemes from being exposed. Was it unusual to see Alex Murdoch at that residence that time of night? Yes, on my shift, yes. This woman is the only witness who saw Alec Murdoch around the time of the murders. Michelle Shelley Smith worked as a caregiver for Alec's mother and says Alec came to his mom's home sometime after 9 p.m. on June 7, 2021. That would have been shortly after the state says Maggie and Paul Murdoch's phones ceased all activity, meaning they were likely dead. Alec's mother had Alzheimer's. Smith said his mom was sleeping that night and that it was unusual for Alec to come visit her so late. Smith recalled Alec stayed about 15 to 20 minutes. Despite that, she says he told her the next day, unsolicited, that he was there much longer than that. And just to be clear, what was the statement he said about how long he was here? 30 to 40 minutes. But, but his phrase was, I was here or you know I was, I was here? I was here 30 to 40 minutes. Was he there 30 or 40 minutes that night? 
not to my recall. Smith cried on the stand as she shared how that conversation with Alec made her so nervous she called her brother to tell him about it. She seemed to suggest Alec was sending her a message to say he was there longer the night of the murders. She also described for the jury how Alec seemed fidgety. The defense pushed back. It's his normal behavior kind of fidgety? Yes. Smith told the jury days after the murders, Alec returned to his mother's house around 6.30 in the morning with what looked like a blue tarp. Holding something like this? Yes. And what did it look like? Like a blue tarp, like a tarp. Blue? Blue. Okay. Was it vinyl? It's like a tarp that you put on a car, you keep your car covered up. Did he say anything when he walked in? No. Okay. What did he do when he walked in? Went upstairs. The prosecution argued in opening statements that investigators recovered a blue raincoat at Alec's mother's home, which had gun residue on it. This special agent with SLED, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, told the jury she found a blue raincoat tucked away in a closet at his mother's house. We located a blue raincoat in the coat closet on the second floor. When we found it, it was balled up like this. That is correct. Still, the defense injected some doubt, getting Smith, the caregiver, to confirm she thought it was a tarp, not a raincoat. And it was not a rain jacket, was it? No, it wasn't. It was a blue tarp? Yes. The defense also pointed out the blue item, whatever it was, didn't have a gun wrapped inside it, such as a murder weapon, which would have left gunshot residue. But the caregiver noticed more about Alec the night of the murders. Did you observe anything about his face? Any on his face? They got a little color, a little blue cut or something. And ma'am, I apologize. A little what cut? Like a like a little bruise or something. Where was it? It's like above his forehead. What she didn't see on Alec was blood. Did Alec have Alec Murdoch have blood on his clothes? No. He had blood on his shoes. No. He had blood on his hair. No. And regarding that blue rain jacket poppy that they found at Alec's mother's house, the witness who oversaw the testing on that is expected to take the stand today. And we do expect that she will say they did find gunshot residue on that raincoat. The prosecution has already said in their opening statement uh, that we can expect to hear much more about that. The trouble is, Poppy, we haven't heard from a witness who has testified to say that they actually saw Alec Murdoch wearing that rain jacket uh, the night of the murders. So defense will likely go that route. Randy, thank you very much. Caitlin. Back here on Capitol Hill, we're going to speak soon to former Defense Secretary Mark Esper after exclusive CNN reporting found that a Chinese spy balloon flew over the United States during the Trump administration. Plus this. I'm not a campaign treasurer. I couldn't answer that for you. I, so you say you're unaware those were Like I said, I don't do my own treasury. He says he's not a treasurer, but the person who did handle Congressman George Santos's campaign finances is now in the spotlight. We have new reporting on that next. Embattled Republican Congressman George Santos says he is bringing 9-11 first responder, first responder Michael Weinstock, who suffers from nerve damage, to the State of the Union tonight as his guest to raise awareness about illnesses caused by toxic exposure. That comes as Santos is facing scrutiny over multiple lies, he is told, including that his mother was present at the World Trade Center during the September 11th terrorist attacks. He has repeatedly claimed that his mom's exposure following 9-11 played a role in her death, 
But as CNN found, immigration records showed that his mother was actually in Brazil between 1999 and 2003. You follow the money in Congressman Santos's campaign that might lead to his longtime treasure. Remember, Santos has dozens of campaign expenses listed at exactly $199.99. Why does that raise eyebrows? Because it is one penny short of 200 bucks where you would have to report and have receipts. And it turns out that same treasurer worked for another politician who had a lot of similar charges. Kara Scannell has brand new reporting on this. Good morning to you. So we knew... We talked weeks ago about the fact that this number would raise eyebrows. What do you know? Yeah, I mean, that number is one that has certainly raised eyebrows. And my colleagues, Frederica Scouten and Greg Krieg and I, were looking through these filings, talking to a number of people. And what we discovered is that um, Santos's treasurer, this woman, Nancy Marks, had also worked on the campaigns of Lee Zeldin, who ran for the governor here in New York. And what we discovered was that he had a similar pattern of 21 $199.99 entries all on the same day. Now, we talked to um, Zeldin's campaign. His former campaign manager told us that uh, he believed this was batched for accounting reasons, but it certainly raises a lot of questions. And so we started to look at who is Nancy Marks' treasurer. And what we discovered was that she did more than what your typical treasurer does, which was just what would normally be kind of an arm's length books and records accounting, that she was involved in fundraising with Santos, that, uh, that she was even setting some uh, goals for people to reach in fundraising, and that she was involved with for-profit entity that Santos had set up. Uh, so their relationship goes much deeper. That is starting you know, to draw a lot more scrutiny. Mm. Now, Santos is distancing himself from her, saying that you know, he, he wasn't involved with the filings. He had a treasurer for that. She resigned from the campaign at the end of last month. So just a lot of questions here. And I spoke to a longtime client of hers. He's been with her for 15 years. He said after she resigned, he called her and asked her, you know, have you done something wrong? And she said, absolutely not. Uh, he said the big question to him, he doesn't know what's going on, is... Is she the problem or is she the victim? Is this one ninety nine ninety nine thing? Is that happened to politicians across the board? Are they doing anything unusual, or is it just the number of times that they were doing it? Yeah. So it seems when we talk to a number of campaign experts that the number is very high. It's an unusual pattern that they have this. And the the odd thing is that. If it's below $200, you don't have to report it. So the question is, why are these coming in? And some of them do raise alarms. You know, the W Hotel in South Beach. I'd love to see when you can get it for $199. Never. <laughs> never. <laughs> Poppy knows. I mean, you'll go there way more than me, but never. never. Paris, thank you. And great reporting, digging through all that. Okay, Caitlin. That is great reporting. And now to more exclusive CNN reporting this morning. A U.S. military intelligence report from last year says there were sightings of Chinese high-altitude balloons in Hawaii and Florida during the Trump presidency. It's still unclear when the U.S. officials first became aware of them. That's reporting from CNN's Zach Cohen. Joining us now to talk about it is former defense secretary under former President Trump, Mark Esper. Thank you for being here this morning. Has the administration had said they were going to reach out to key officials from the Trump administration about getting a briefing on what's happened here, why these balloons, they now know about them but did not know about them when you were in office. Have they reached out to you yet? No, I haven't heard from them yet, but we'll, we'll see. Give them a few more days. Would you take that briefing if it was offered sure, to you? Sure, if I can, if I can, uh, if I can have the time to do it, if I can get if they can uh, give me the briefing at the right level of security, maybe it, I'm curious, first of all, what happened, but maybe I can offer some insights, some ideas on how do we plug this gap in our intelligence. What questions do you still have about this whole incident? Well, why didn't we detect it, right? That's question number one. So, uh, and, and how, what are we doing to address it? So that's a big issue. Look, we, we took, during the Trump administration, we took our airspace sovereignty very importantly. People forget that in 2020, 
Secretary Pompeo and I pushed to withdraw the United States from the Open Skies Treaty because we were confident the Russians were, tre- were cheating by, uh, by using their overflights in unauthorized ways to gain strategic intelligence. So we got out of the treaty because we were concerned it was damaging our national security. So we take these issues, took these issues very seriously. The top U.S. general, who's basically in charge of protecting North American skies, said that there was an awareness gap, and that's why these past incidents went undetected. Is that them basically saying they didn't see what they were supposed to see? Well, that's what it sounds like to me, that maybe it was lost in the noise, lost in the radar clutter, this balloon moving across the skies at 60,000 feet at a slow rate of uh, movement. So I don't know. That's what uh, I think if I were DOD right now, I would be ordering an inquiry as to what happened and why. And I'm sure Congress is going to do the same to find out what happened, how did it happen, when did we find out, and what are we doing to fix the problem? Is it a mission failure by NORAD? I, I don't know. We need to dig into it. I mean, clearly their mission is the defense, aerospace defense of the United States. And, um, you, you know, this is one of these unknowns unknowns, as one of my predecessors would have said. As we know, and we had Diane Gallagher out off the South Carolina coast yesterday as this recovery effort for the downed balloon is ongoing. China is now saying that the U.S., that debris does not belong to the United States, essentially implying that they should send it back. Oh, do you think yeah, the United look, States it's, should? It's ridiculous. And, and maybe we'll, we will send it back at some point, like they did with our EP3 plane that they shot, didn't shoot down, but they knocked down in uh, 2001, I think, and they sh- eventually shipped it back to us in small boxes. Maybe we should do the same. The president says he doesn't think this weakens U.S.-China relations. Do you think that this incident does, actually? Oh, I think it, uh, it certainly undermines U.S.-China relations. It damages trust between our two countries, between our leadership. And to me right now, that's one of the biggest questions is what happened on their end? Did Xi Jinping know or did he not know? Was this the PLA military acting to undermine uh, the Blinken visit? Or was this just bureaucratic incompetence that they allowed this balloon to float over in, in the way it did at the time it did? I think those are really big questions because, look, Xi Jinping stumbled a few times in the last several months. The, the terrible COVID um, reversal. Uh, He has this issue. He has problems with demographic issues in his country. A lot of problems going on in China right now. And this just kind of adds to the slate of issues he's facing. They also lied about what the balloon was. Initially, they said it was a meteorology balloon, which I don't think anyone believes. I mean, they've lied throughout this. Uh, This is what autocracies do, right? They lie in order to advance their own interests. I want to ask you about Trump, because obviously you served under former President Trump. You've now come out and been quite frank about your views on him now. He has done the same with you. A new Washington Post ABC poll found that few Americans are excited about a potential Biden-Trump rematch. But Trump is running for re-election. Are you surprised by that? No, but I've been saying a lot that we need a new generation of leaders from both sides, right? We need a new generation that can come forward from both parties and give the American more choice the American people more choice. And that's kind of how I look at the situation, particularly for the Republican Party. We, it looks like we're going to have a good slate of candidates uh, start to announce and already have announced. And I think that'll give GOP voters a lot of choice out there. What do you do if Trump becomes the nominee and he is running against Biden? I think that's unlikely. But if uh, it happens? What do I personally do? Well, would you I'm not going to support President Trump. But look, I think, again, we're going to have a slate of very strong candidates, people that will advance traditional conservative GOP policy objectives, and will do so in a way that's uplifting, that will bring people together, that will unify the Republican Party, and that can win elections. You have to win elections. Mark Esper, thank you so much for your perspective on this. We talked to you on Friday. Grateful to have you back on again. Great. Thank Good you so to be much. back. Thanks, Caitlin. Yeah, and I'm sure we will see him back considering what's going on in the news. Thank you both. Sibling versus sibling and a historic matchup between two black QBs. I'm talking about quarterback. Look at that. Super Bowl. Are you ready? Yeah, are you going? 
Uh, maybe. I don't know. You go to like every fun thing. <laughs> go for both of us. We're live in Arizona <laughs> here at the Super Bowl 57. Why are you putting my business in the street? Coy, she's putting my business in the street. Come on. So Super Bowl week is kicking off in Arizona as the Philadelphia. Remember, it's just Philadelphia. You don't say the Phila. It's says who? I used to live there. That's how you say it. Philadelphia. It's the Philadelphia Eagles <laughs> and the Kansas City Chiefs. Eagles. Eagles. <laughs> gear up to take the field this weekend. The Eagles, Jalen Hurts, and the Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes, are set to make history as it will be the first time in Super Bowl history that the two black uh, starting quarterbacks will be on the field. So, seeing as Coy Wire live for us in Phoenix with more this morning. And also, Coy, remember, it's not water, it's water. Water. Water in Philadelphia. <laughs> it's also the Illadelph, if you really fly. All right, there you go. Pennsylvania, too. Tell them. Here at Super Bowl Radio Row, folks are still w- waking up here in the desert. Good morning, lovely people. These two teams, Don and Poppy, are eerily similar. Both scored 546 points. Both have a 16-3 and record. Both have six All-Pros, including a Kelsey brother. It's going to be intense. But last night, opening night, was all about embracing having made it here to the the biggest stage in all of American sports. It's definitely something you want to soak in. Um, these are once in a lifetime opportunities. What do I do? What's up with you? How you doing, baby? Super Bowl opening night is back. First time fully back in three years, and you never know what you might see. There's this one guy that was wearing like just this like barrel, like an old like uh, whiskey barrel, you know, but he had his shirt off. Some of the bigger storylines swirling around this year, history-making Super Bowl quarterbacks. The Chiefs Patrick Mahomes and the Eagles Jalen Hurts have the youngest combined age, and this is the first time two black quarterbacks will start. The motivating factor is to be the best. Um, you're in the biggest game of your life, and you want to go out there and make memories with your teammates. To be able to um, be of influence and kind of give, give the next generation of quarterback something to believe in, something to look forward to. I think that's that's nice, too. And history-making Super Bowl brothers, the always entertaining Kelsey brothers. Travis of the Chiefs and Jason of the Eagles are the first brothers to ever face off in a Super Bowl as players. We already know that he's got the little ones, and that, that, that grows the heart even bigger for someone, so he, he's definitely got mama's love more right now. Mom probably likes Travis where she keeps trying to hedge your bet and say she likes me now because I have kids. And that's a good way I've kind of leveled the playing field with Trav. But um, the baby always gets the love for mom. Super Bowl 57. It's a lifelong journey and dream come true for most players, but one not achieved without sacrifice. Sometimes you got to give up fun, like going out, hanging out with friends and stuff. I've never had alcohol, I've never smoked weed, I've never had a drug, so I guess that's the sacrifice I've made. My biggest thing was probably giving up McDonald's, I would say. But I didn't do that until after college. Wow. <laughs> All right, Koi Wire. Koi, uh, I'm digging the outfit, brother. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that coming from you. You're a, a fashionado. You've been styling for a long time, Don. For, for, that, that's like one of the highlights of my career. Can you put that on my highlight reel, please? I am digging the hoodie. Koi, everywhere I go, that's the only thing people talk to me about. I think I started a fashion trend. Control room scrambling to get a picture <laughs> to remind our viewers of the epic. There it is. There we go. Look at the look at your face, too, oh, okay. your expression. I s- <laughs> <laughs> hey, 
Don, your, your, your style's so ill, it makes medicine sick. It doesn't matter what you wear, it's how you wear it. People can say what they want, it can't affect you, baby. Good morning. Oh you know what they say. an awesome day today, and we're going to look fly doing it. Hate is going to hate. There thank you, go. you very much. No one <laughs> says it better. Coy, thank you. Thank you, Coy. All right, ahead, we're going to take you back to Capitol Hill, ahead of President Biden's State of the Union. White House Communications Director Kate Bedingfield will join us live. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. They are alive, but nobody comes. We heard them. They're calling out, asking for help. They asked to be rescued. We cannot rescue them. How can we rescue them? Oh my gosh, the anguish there. Good morning, everyone. CNN is live on the ground as search and rescue teams race to save lives across Turkey and Syria. The death toll from the catastrophic earthquake topping 5,000. Countless people still trapped in the rubble and fighting to stay alive. Also this morning, we are live here on Capitol Hill, where President Biden is going to make his case for a re-election, an announcement that's expected soon tonight. But a recent poll shows most Americans don't think he has achieved much. Can President Biden cut through the noise? We're going to speak to the White House Communications Director, Kate Bedingfield, to get her view in a few moments. Also, the FAA will be on the hot seat today on Capitol Hill after a series of travel meltdowns and safety issues, including a near a number of near collisions at airports. But we do begin with the massive search and rescue operation underway right now in Turkey and in Syria. Countless people are still trapped under heaps of rubble and more than 5,000 people are confirmed dead after yesterday's catastrophic earthquake. There are thousands upon thousands of collapsed buildings that still need to be searched. We have seen some moments of hope, though, this video of a small girl pulled from the wreckage alive. But many are still waiting for rescue. A warning now, you will likely find this video very hard to watch. That is a woman under a heap of concrete crying, help, help. Freezing temperatures have made the situation even more dire. Nick Payton Walsh is live on the ground in Turkey, right near the quake zone. Nick, thank you for being there. This weather complicating all of these search and rescue efforts. Yeah, Polly, I mean, we're heading closer and closer towards the epicenter, Kakmarang Marash, where this struck essentially two times, the first at 4 a.m. yesterday, and then a significant aftershock of 7.5. That would be a major earthquake, frankly, anywhere else in the world, hitting also in the same region, too. You can see some of the damage behind me. And as we drove here, the other side of the traffic, constant flow of people, ambulances heading out and away from this area. It's so hard to get some of the aid in. We've seen headed from Istanbul overnight a constant stream of ambulances, fire engines, excavators. The job is starting, but it is one under enormous time pressure. I'm standing here in brilliant sunshine, but every once in a while we get a dense horizontal snowstorm that comes in. That makes it hard for aircraft, it makes it very dangerous on the roads. These highways lined with smashed cars that have been in accidents on the way here. That's another rescue job for people to try and achieve as well. So, Khatmaran Marash, the epicenter, as I said, significant 
destruction there. We'll see more of that uh, in the hours ahead. But also Hate, another city in the border region too. Uh, significant loss of life there too. And children being pulled from the rubble. This is the essential problem now. We have a small window for rescue services here in Turkey where they knew something like this could happen, where they are prepared for earthquakes while they have the resources and they're getting help from outside the country too. A small window for them to get into that rubble and take the most fragile hour. Remember, this struck in the middle of the night. People asleep in their beds, not wearing the warm winter clothing. I'm freezing in standing and talking to you here. So it's a very delicate time here. Many hearts, frankly, uh, on the edge. And that is... the potentially better news in Turkey, you cross the border into Syria, where there's very little medical rescue yep. infrastructure at all because of the brutal war that's been there for a decade. Stories are significantly worse. So uh, a very dangerous few days ahead here, Polly. We just saw, Nick, those drone shots from Syria where the International Rescue Committee says because of the war, only 45 percent of the hospitals are even operational right now. Nick, thank you for the reporting. We'll come back to you a bit later in the program. And later today, President Biden will be making a trip to Capitol Hill to deliver his State of the Union address. The administration saying that the president will be focusing on the progress made by his administration, especially the economy. So let's talk about that. Get a preview of it with White House Communications Director Kate Bedingfield. Good morning, Kate. Thank you for joining us here on CNN this morning. Really appreciate it. It's good to see you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about uh, what is going to happen and people's perceptions, because there is this new Washington Post ABC News poll. It finds that about two thirds of Americans feel that the that President Biden has not accomplished a whole lot in his first two years in office. Listen, perception is reality, especially when it comes to public office. So why aren't the American people feeling or seeing what the president plans, uh, what the president is doing? And is he planning to talk about that tonight? Well, absolutely. He's going to talk about that tonight. It's, you're going to hear from him tonight about the things we've accomplished in the first two years that are making a difference in people's lives. Twelve million jobs created during President Biden's first two years in office. Historic low unemployment, wages going up, uh, investments in our infrastructure, our roads and bridges, uh, historic gun safety legislation. So, yes, uh, the American people are going to hear directly from the president tonight about what we've accomplished in the first two years, but also about the path forward, about how we're going to keep building on that progress, how we're going to finish the job. Uh, people across the country remember... Oh, sorry, Kate, but why, why aren't the American people feeling it? Because the polls are showing that the American people are not feeling that. Is that the issue with the president? Is that the communications office? What is going on? Well, well, remember where we were when President Biden came into office. We were uh, we were in the depths of a pandemic. The economy had ground to a halt. Inflation was creeping up, not just here, but around the globe as a result of the pandemic. And so the president took quick action, meaningful action to start rebuilding this economy from the bottom up and the middle out. And the choices that he's made have, again, led to historic job creation, historic low unemployment. And people are starting to feel that around the country. But as the president would be the first to say and will say tonight, we're going to keep talking about what those impacts mean. Over the course of 2023 and into 2024, people are going to start to feel the impact of some of the major legislation that we passed, the infrastructure law, the Inflation Reduction Act that's low lowering prescription drug costs and lowering energy costs for people, people are going to start to feel the impact of that. But and that so is, you're going to hear... 
from the president tonight. And then you're also going to hear from the president, the vice president, the cabinet, as they're traveling after the speech, fanning out across the country to talk about how we're going to finish the job. That's a look into the future. But as of now, on the economy, as it relates to the economy, 41% of Americans feel that they are not as well off financially as they were when Biden uh, became president. Is there a disconnect between the indicators that the White House points to versus how people feel when they are grocery shopping or when they are paying their, their rent or paying their bills, Kate? Well, we've made huge strides in bringing costs down, but the president, as he always says, we have far, we have more to do. We have farther to go. He understands the impact of when you go to the grocery store and you're paying more for uh, for meat or milk or eggs. He understands the impact that you that that has on your family. That's why when he makes choices about his economic agenda, he's thinking about how is it going to impact people around kitchen tables uh, across this country. He grew up in a family uh, just like that, where where you really had to think about you know how are you going to make ends meet, how are you going to make it add up at the end of the month, and so that's his guiding principle as he thinks about uh, an economic plan. And it's an economic plan, frankly, that has made huge progress. Again, we're looking at historic low unemployment. We're looking at 800,000 manufacturing jobs created in this country. So making things in America again uh, for the first time in a long time. So we've made enormous progress, but there's certainly more to do. The president is relentlessly focused on bringing down costs. And you're going to hear that from him tonight uh, in the speech. So listen, something that that may hurt that is that Americans feel a major impact. They're going to feel a major impact if we default on our debts and concerning the debt limit. Is that he's saying that there is he is not negotiable. Nothing is negotiable. He's not going to negotiate the debt ceiling. Do you think that's irresponsible? I think it is the responsibility of Congress, as it always has been, to address the debt limit. And, uh, you know, Speaker McCarthy and members of the Republican caucus voted under President Trump three times to raise the debt limit uh, uh, clean with no preconditions. So this is a constitutional responsibility of the Congress. The president is not willing to make uh, the full faith and credit of the United States a bargaining chip because the consequences of defaulting uh, would have enormous impact on families across the country, would have a very destabilizing impact Uh, on our economy. So no, the president is not willing to negotiate. That is Congress's responsibility. However, uh, the president is having a conversation as he met with Speaker McCarthy last week and will continue to work with the Congress. He is having a conversation about fiscal responsibility, about our priorities moving forward. He said he's going to release his budget on March 9th, and he's asking Republicans to put their plan on the table so we can hear where are the cuts they're proposing to make. Are they proposing to cut Social Security? Are they proposing to cut Medicare? Are they proposing to cut our national defense? So he wants to see their plan and he wants to have a conversation. Under this Uh, president, we've reduced the deficit. Just one more point here, Don. We've reduced the deficit $1.7 trillion under this president. uh, And his plans moving forward are going to continue to build on our economic strength uh, while while being fiscally responsible. That's the conversation that he wants to have with Congress. I want to get as much in as possible because we don't often have the opportunity to speak with you. So listen, let's talk about I'm sure the president never anticipated that he'd be talking about a balloon traipsing across uh, America. But uh, yesterday that he said that the shooting down of the, the suspected spy balloon near Myrtle Beach, he said that it did not change his State of the Union speech or... Is he going to talk about that? Because that that has a huge impact. Everyone is talking uh, foreign policy now with this very visual symbol of a balloon going across America. Well, of course, our relationship with China is always go- was always going to be in the speech. It is a key. A consequential relationship. It is one pillar of our foreign policy. The president has obviously worked to continue to manage our relationship with China uh, to a place of competition and not conflict. I would anticipate that he will uh, he will mention 
the events of the last week. But uh, but again, the speech uh, and, and the larger pieces about uh, his foreign policy uh, have not been reworked because of this balloon. Now, what I will say about the balloon is that the president handled it effectively and with strength. We were able to capture intelligence uh, on the Chinese as the balloon passed across uh, across the country. The decision to wait to shoot it down gave us the opportunity to do that, to gather intelligence on them. Uh, and we were able to shoot it down in territorial waters where we could recover the payload, gather that intelligence. And also there was no threat uh, to the American people. He's so being criticized for not shooting it down sooner. But he also sent a very sooner. direct, he it, sent a very. He's <laughs> been criticized for not shooting it down sooner. So you don't think that that was a mistake? No, because because we were able to gather more intelligence and more information. We were able to collect back uh, on the balloon. We know more about Chinese capabilities and tradecraft as a result of that decision. And then we ultimately shot it down and sent a very direct message to China that it was unacceptable. I just I have two quick things for you, because we, we don't often talk about national security in terms of domestic terror. There are two people who have been arrested and charged with conspiring to destroy energy facilities near Baltimore. Authorities say that they wanted to completely destroy the city uh, to further their neo-Nazi goals. Is the president going to talk about white supremacy or the, the, the threats of the far right domestic terrorism tonight? That is an important issue. And, and as you know, Don, the president talks all the time about the need to strengthen and continue to fortify the soul of our nation. And a piece of that is calling out white supremacy, calling out hate. As the president says, hate never goes away. It only hides. And we have to be vigilant about it. Uh, yesterday, just yesterday, in fact, we convened a meeting here uh, that the second gentleman participated in, uh, the uh, chair of the Domestic Policy Council, our Homeland Security Advisor, and people all across the administration to talk about the rise of anti-Semitism uh, and hate and, and violence across the country. And so this is something that the president has never shied away from calling out. He believes that silence is complicity. And so I can, I would expect that you will hear from him tonight about the need to, uh, to continue to protect and fortify the soul of our nation. And how is he going to address police reform? Because Tyree Nichols' family will be in the audience tonight. How, what is he going to do as it relates to Tyree Nichols' family and police reform? I, you, will, you should expect to hear from him about uh, police reform. He believes that we uh, need more accountability in policing. He obviously, uh, across the course of the last two years, has called for Congress to send the George Floyd Act to his desk. And when Republicans in the Senate prevented that from happening, he took action uh, and, and uh, put forth an executive order to increase use of force standards and, again, to, uh, to increase accountability. So he believes that we need, uh, uh, that police need accountability. They also need resources to be able to do their jobs uh, well, to be able to walk their beats, to know their communities, uh, so that the people uh, in communities across the country who uh, trust and rely on them can have that trust. So uh, I would expect to hear from him tonight uh, about the need for police reform. All right. Kate Bettingfield at the White House, thank you very much. We appreciate you joining us here on CNN this morning. Thanks for having me, Don. Thank I appreciate you. it. Make sure you join Anderson and Jake for live coverage of President Biden's State of the Union address. It starts tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern. Caitlin. Yeah, Don, what a preview of the address tonight that everyone's anticipating. And as we wait for that, also this morning, there is a highly anticipated aviation safety hearing that is taking place here on Capitol Hill. It comes in the wake of widespread air travel issues, including the FAA computer outage that caused a nationwide ground stop, Southwest Airlines holiday meltdown, and two near-miss incidents at U.S. airports. Officials from the FAA, the NTSB, and the largest pilots union are all expected to testify 
CNN's Pete Montine is covering all of this for us. And I'm not going to should tell everyone they're wearing socks <laughs> with airplanes on them. Uh, so you are perfectly primed to cover this hearing today. But in all seriousness, this is something that has captivated the nation's <laughs> attention. What are we expecting? The head of the NTSB is going to testify. She spoke to me yesterday, and she tells me this latest close call will very likely take center stage. That is when two planes almost landed on top of each other in Austin on Saturday. She says now they came within 100 feet of a disaster. She says a wake-up call for the entire industry. The newest case of a near collision on the runway comes as aviation leaders are assembling on Capitol Hill. Investigators say before dawn Saturday, a FedEx Boeing 767 was about to land at Austin's International Airport as a Southwest Airlines 737 was told to take off from the same runway. The National Transportation Safety Board now tells CNN the FedEx crew aborted their landing plans unprompted and started to climb, averting disaster. FedEx is on the go. It was very close, and we believe less than 100 feet. NTSB Chair Jennifer Hamandy is anticipating the incident will come up during Tuesday's hearing on aviation safety. It comes three weeks after another near collision at JFK, where a Delta Airlines flight abruptly stopped its takeoff as an American Airlines flight taxied across the runway in front of it. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance. It's scary. Uh, I, I worry. Uh, about the potential for a catastrophe. Issues in the air are being met with issues on the ground, from last month's FAA computer system failure that paralyzed airports to Southwest's holiday travel meltdown that canceled more than 16,000 flights. The U.S. Travel Association now says bad flight experiences are putting a damper on Americans' travel plans. The operating environment is much more difficult. United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby predicts a rough year for aviation and says his airline is trying to control what it can. Brand new graduates from United's Industry First Flight School are now headed to new jobs on their way to shore up pilot shortages at the airlines. The last generation of older pilots is starting to leave. They are starting with uh, retirement. And our job is to come in and backfill those positions and you know help keep the aviation industry going. Industry figures say more people now work at major airlines than before the pandemic. But the pressure is on to keep their safety record clean. It's a... A uh, great time of hiring. I'm, I'm very excited about that, but we have to main, make sure that our focus is first and foremost on safety. All of this comes as Congress is setting the FAA's budget. That determines how much the agency can spend. And Caitlin, never before has this been thrust into the limelight in such a big way. Yeah, it's remarkable to see this hearing playing out. Everyone will be watching it closely, and you will too. Thank you, Pete Montine. All right, Poppy, back to you. All right, Caitlin, so something that really stood out to us from that report Pete just gave is how close the Southwest jet and the FedEx cargo plane were to colliding. They were less than 100 feet apart, 100 feet. So this is what that looks like. You see Don and down the hallway, that is our senior data reporter, Harry Enton. On the end here. There, but think about that. The distance is so short, it actually fits in the walk from our control rooms to our studio. It's about half the length of a cargo jet itself. Remember, there were 128 people on board that Southwest flight, and they were that close, here they are, to a collision. But keep in mind, we were walking. Imagine if you were on an airplane. I know. Which is going a lot faster. I know. That. that would freak so, me out. Yeah. Right, that's how close. So what's the number? So the mor this morning's number is 100 feet, right? I mean, that was how close we were. 
But I think the thing to p- p- sort of put in perspective, and Pete was sort of hinting at it, is that is the second close call in the last month. You know, it was a thousand feet between that taxiing American flight and the taking off Delta flight colliding at JFK. So all of a sudden, you know, I was flying on Friday. That's some scary stuff if you're a passenger, right? Yeah. But I think what's important to put in perspective is that flying has become so much safer, in fact, over the last few decades, right? Thank you right? for this. Yes. This Thank is, you. I want to bring comfort to people. To a nervous flyer. To a nervous you. flyer. So the worldwide airliner fatalities, the early average, back in the 1970s, it was nearly 2,000. Look at where we were in the 2010s, That's right? That's for the whole decade, right? That's for, that, that is the yearly average. So that is the yearly average. So 422, but what? that's worldwide. Private and this private. Is, this is worldwide. These are airliner fatalities. Uh, on the average. So, but in the United States, we're significantly safer than we are, let's say, in some foreign countries. But the key thing here is that we're just getting so much safer. And here's the other thing that I think is so important is compare it to other ways of traveling, right? The deaths per 100 million miles traveled. Look at cars. It's 0.46. Buses, 0.04. Trains, 0.005. Right, Don? Airlines, 0.0004. Airline travel is the safest way to travel compared to anything else. When you're getting into a car, you're much more likely to have a fatality than if you're going on an airline. Perception versus reality, totally. as I just said with Kate Bedingfield. Everyone is like, I'm so nervous about flying when you're actually in much more danger when you're in a car. This is what the flight attendants tell me when I start. All the time. Oh, yeah. So, thank you, Harry. Right. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you guys for that nice display, by the way. Got some exercise. <laughs> Caitlin. <laughs> All right, we are back here on Capitol Hill. In a few moments, I'm going to be joined by the chair of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee, James Comer. We're going to talk about the hearings that are set for this week and his questions about the Chinese surveillance balloon that the U.S. Navy is now recovering. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. made it clear to China what we're going to do. They understand our position. We're not going to back off. We did the right thing. And there's not a bad question of weakening their strength. It's just reality. The U.S. military has released new pictures of their recovery operations off the coast of the Carolinas, where that suspected Chinese spy balloon was shot down. Here in Washington, Republicans have criticized President Biden and the Pentagon for not taking action sooner. The administration and national security officials have defended the move, saying that they were waiting to down it until they could do so safely over the ocean. Joining us now is Republican Congressman James Comer of Kentucky, who is the chairman of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee, which will be holding hearings on the border as well as Twitter this week. We're going to be getting to both of those hearings in a moment. But first, Congressman, good morning and thank you. Uh, On this down Chinese balloon. Do you expect Republicans will probe that and start an investigation? I do. I do. We're concerned about our homeland security. Uh, We don't believe this administration takes homeland security very seriously. Uh, We're going to talk today in our committee about the debacle at the southern border, the crisis at the southern border. Our southern border is not secure. We're going to learn that our northern border is not secure at our hearing today. And then we see this balloon just, just go through our entire airspace and planes have to be diverted. So we we wonder, is our airspace even secure over the United States? So we have a lot of questions for this administration and hopefully we'll get some answers soon. 
Well, one thing they said was that they didn't doubt it because they were worried what kind of damage it could cause if they did over land. One thing you said as we were learning about this balloon and tracking it, you asked uh, on Fox News, is it bioweapons in that balloon? Did that balloon take off from Wuhan? We don't know anything about it. But you don't have any evidence that this no, balloon can take bioweapons. I asked a question. I mean, what, what is in the balloon? This is something that we believe the, the White House should have uh, advised us on. They should have had a briefing to tell us what this was. I mean, back home in Kentucky, this is all anybody talked about what was this balloon. Everyone was concerned. We all, no one trusts China. They know China is an adversary. Uh, my concern was the military had no idea anything about the balloon. What was in the balloon? Uh, where, was it a spy balloon? Was it a weather balloon, like China said? You know, what exactly did the, did the U.S. military know about this? What did our intelligence know about this? Did they know it was even in airspace before it got in the Alaska airspace? So, you know, it's just a lot of questions. And that was just one of the questions. Just for all we know, it could have bioweapons in it. They could be testing but to see if they could. But you don't have any evidence. Could... No, no, I didn't. I asked a question because we don't know. We didn't know. Uh, we still don't know what all was in the balloon and what the purpose of the balloon was. There's still big questions about that. I think both parties want to know about that. Mm -hmm. So does the White House as well. All House lawmakers will be getting a briefing on the balloon on Thursday here on Capitol Hill. You'll, I imagine, be in that briefing. If you go into that briefing, and I know you have to be careful about what you can say coming out of that, and they say, no, there are no bioweapons in that balloon, will you come out and make that clear publicly? Sure, absolutely. But I never said it was. I said, for all we know, it had bioweapons. We don't know anything about the balloon. But there's a concern here that uh, our federal government isn't securing our homeland. We, we know the southern border and the northern border are wide open right now. We know that criminals are pouring across the border every day with fentanyl, there's human trafficking, there's increased crime in our cities. Now there's a, a concern that none of us had thought about. Is our airspace secure? Are they making sure that none of our adversaries around the world are invading our airspace? Are, are, are they trying to do anything? Or was this just simply a test by President Z to see if he could do it? to see uh, what, if anything, Joe Biden would do. How would he respond? You know, Senator McConnell suggested that there were plenty of opportunities from, from uh, his uh, advisors. There were plenty of opportunities to shoot that down in rural areas in Alaska or Montana before it you know, made its way all across the United States, including flying over my military base, Fort Campbell, which is in your district. Which yeah, is in my district. The one in Montana as well. I know there's still big questions about that. You've also got a slew of hearings this week, including one where you've subpoenaed three former Twitter employees on Thursday. You recently met privately on Capitol Hill with Elon Musk. What did he tell you? Did he give you anything uh, that he believed should be asked at that hearing on Thursday? He, we talked a long time about the hearing. Elon Musk is a great American. I mean, thank goodness for Elon Musk. You, you think about the, the, the crises that we're looking into right now in, in the House Oversight Committee with, with the Twitter documents. We wouldn't know that the government was involved in censoring conservative speech were it not for Elon Musk being transparent and disclosing the Twitter files. You know, the thing that's troubling to me is the fact that according to the emails, and, and even Zuckerberg implied this at, at Facebook, the FBI was meeting regularly with, with the social media platforms telling them, you know, be careful, this might be disinformation. This might be Russian disinformation. Even suggesting that they ban people from their platforms. Credible outlets like the New York Post, the fourth biggest newspaper in America. I mean, this is troubling. The government has no role in censoring, in censoring speech. And also, the, the, with the documents, we wouldn't know that, that 
the president mishandled classified documents were it not for a leak. So this administration is not being transparent with the American Well, it was people. reporting from CBS News. But on, on that, you are saying that they colluded. You've implied the FBI, that the FBI and Twitter colluded to suppress that information, that story about Hunter Biden's laptop. But CNN has reported on this. There's no evidence that there was any kind of direct, you know, directive coming from the FBI to Twitter on that. So do you have any definitive proof, anything that we are going to see on that? I would invite CNN to uh, watch our committee hearing Wednesday and see if you can uh, pick up any new information. We will be watching, but we've spoken to former Twitter executives, senior staff who has said there's no evidence of that. Did Elon Musk suggest anything that you should ask these former employees? Did he share anything with you that he has not shared publicly? Elon Musk is very concerned about the government's role in in big tech, in the government's role in, in censoring speech. Is it the FBI's role to have an agency of 50 people that does nothing but polices social media? Is it the FBI's role to, to use our tax dollars to pay Twitter and Facebook and Google and the other platforms for their time so that they can meet every day to... to well, there are uh, questions on disinformation, especially after what happened in the 2016 campaign. You can say those are legitimate, right? There are always... Uh, questions about disinformation. Uh, we have questions about disinformation. We're concerned about some of the things that uh, Dr. Fauci said that we believe may have ended up in, in time being labeled as disinformation. So you know, who makes the decision as to who determines what's disinformation and what's not? One thing that uh, you may think is infor- disinformation, I may believe is fact. Who, who's going to decide? You, you or I, that what we want to know from the Twitter executives is walk us through the policy. What was your policy to determine what is disinformation? And who were you uh, seeking advice from? Who in the government was advising you? And, and what were they saying? Just kind of walk us through that. We want to get a picture of exactly what the process was in censoring people. I understand you have a lot of questions about that. On Hunter Biden's team and the investigation that you're doing there, his lawyers are asking state and federal prosecutors to to basically pursue criminal investigations into people who disseminated his information. They say he's a private citizen. This information, they believe, was illegally passed around. Have you spoken to his legal team yet? I have not, but let's just think about that. They spent two years denying that that laptop was his. Then they said, well, the laptop had been altered. Now they're threatening to sue everyone uh, because the contents of the laptop have become public. So it's been quite the transformation watching Hunter Biden's legal team. Have you sent subpoenas to banks for his financial information? We are uh, in the process of trying to obtain the financial information. The, Does the, that involve subpoenas? It, it will if we don't get the bank records from Treasury. We shouldn't have to subpoena the banks for this information. This information prior to Joe Biden becoming president was readily available to the chairman of the House Oversight Committee. He is blocking me from getting information that every one of my predecessors, Republican and Democrat, had access to under President Trump, Obama, and George W. Bush. Well, there are questions about Trump's financial information. I mean, he refused to release his tax, his own tax yeah, information. Yeah, but, but these are bank violations. We're talking about bank violations. Potential I'm not, I'm bank not requesting taxes. I'm requesting what are called suspicious activity reports, which were created to help members of Congress be able to track suspicious foreign transactions. So these were put into place so that we could communicate better with banks. And, and law enforcement to determine things like terrorist activity. And I understand, and you've said that you may have subpoenas to get those. One last question before you go. You have asked for visitor names from the Secret Service when it comes to classified documents and the concerns about who may have been around the ones that 
uh, President Biden took with him when he left office. Have you also asked the Secret Service for those names from Mar-a-Lago, given former President Trump also took classified documents? There's, a, there's an investigation of that. There's a, a special counsel looking into everything at Mar-a-Lago. There's a special uh, counsel looking to into Biden those. as well. We're, well, we're going to ask for those for Pence. We're going to treat Pence exactly the same way that we're treating Joe Biden. With Trump, it's a whole different deal. There's a there's right. a formal special prosecutor. Trump has been investigated for six years. She's still being investigated. Uh, my former, investigation is on. There's on a former Biden. special counsel for. Or there's a special counsel for Biden as well. So why why yeah. does it make a difference if well, it's for the, Trump? Ex- pardon me for not having as much confidence in this special counsel appointed by Merrick Garland on on Joe Biden. Uh, but he appointed the special counsel into into Trump as well. I, I, I'm against both special counsels. I, I said when they appointed the special counsel for Trump, we don't need a special counsel. You cannot name one time in our history where a special counsel has been effective. These special counsels never materialize. They take forever. They operate uh, behind closed doors. There's no transparency. I believe that our oversight committee or congressional investigating committees can do much better work in a transparent setting and, and do it quicker than the special counsels. Okay, so you say you will ask for the visitor names for Biden and for Pence, but not for former President Trump. Well, they're already looking into that. There's already, you have an aggressive special counsel looking into everything with, with Trump related to his mishandling of classified documents. So so that box is already checked. Same to Biden as well, though. That's the discussion. Well, we don't there. know. We don't know exactly what all's going on with Biden. Our investigation with Biden is over, is over influence peddling. There's a concern among a lot of Republicans that some of these classified documents may have been part of the business model with the president's brother and the president's son in some of their shady business dealings. Right, That's why we're concerned about Biden. No evidence of that so far. I understand you have questions about Well, we have evidence it. that they've influenced Petal, that they've always used the Biden. But not in relation to the classified We don't documents. have any evidence of the classified documents, but we're investigating that. Okay, Congressman Cumber, we're out of time. Unfortunately, we have a lot more questions for you. I know you have a bunch of hearings this week. Thank you for taking time to join Thank us. Thank you for morning. having me. All right. Thank you. That's going to be that's the time that we're in where facts are sort of flexible. And that's why just, we got Caitlin Collins on the Hill checking in real time. It it's was a great interview. Citing incredible sources like citing The New York Post as a credible source and saying that facts are it's just I, I can't believe that we're here. Caitlin, that was a, a great interview. All right. Moving Thank on. You. Um, anyway, well, now moving on, because that's listen. That's a big issue when it comes to the American... Hold on, please, with the music. That's a big issue when it comes to the American people. The American people are going to have to suffer through all of this stuff from election deniers to people who don't believe in facts, we don't have a shared reality, and now it's taken center stage to people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, a, an election denier, a conspiracy theorist, a QAnon sort of influencer or supporter presiding over the House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. It's a sad day for America when that happens, and it's a sad time for us when we have to deal with that. And I also think, and that was the point I was trying to make, is why it is critically important to constantly and in real time fact check, right? right? Yeah. And say, but the for example, Merrick Garland appointed the special counsel, as Caitlin said, for both Trump and Biden. And are you going to treat yeah. these things the same? The same as going back to a special counsel. I'm not sure if it was the same kind. You and I were talking about it for Bill Clinton yeah. when it came to Ken Starr. Was that effective in what it's not? Well, it's not. But I think there should be equal treatment by all. If you're going to appoint a special counsel for the former president, then you should appoint one for the current president yeah. and possibly for the current, uh, the, the vice yeah. president and what have you. So here we go. We'll be right back.
So a live look now at Austin, Texas. That's the starting point of The Last of Us, HBO's current smash hit that chronicles a global zombie apocalypse fueled by fungus. And it is a lot of us wondering, could it happen in real life? Could it? Our our chief medical correspondent is Dr. Sanjay Gupta to help us out. Good morning. So um, is fungus, this kind of fungus, actually a threat? I, first of all, I got to say that I, I watch part of this show now as homework for this assignment, and and it's a really interesting um, show. I, I have to say, what 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 the show is about is is a fungus actually inducing this this mind altering behavior in in humans. That's that's not a, a real threat, um, but where they got the idea was the idea of this fungus known as orchicordyceps um, actually inducing sort of a, a change in, in ants. And I don't, know, I don't know how well you can see this, but this is an ant that basically was infected. Uh, it, it is dying, goes, climbs up a tree, climbs up a plant, just basically locks in there. And you can see at the top of the screen there, in the middle of the screen, this fungus is actually growing out of its head now. And the reason it's doing that is that it's basically stripped the ant of all of its nutrients. The fungus has been a total parasite, and now it's creating the spore. Oh my gosh. And it's going to spread its seeds and infect other ants. It is wild. This is this is really wild. Ophiocordyceps again is the name of that fungus. Now that, thankfully, is not something that happens in humans. But that is where the the show creators got the idea for this television series. Watching what it does to ants. Generally speaking, there are different types of relationships between pathogens and humans. These symbiotic relationships, and we can sort of break them down, but. Mutualism is one of them. That's where both species may benefit. Think things like coral and algae, for example. Commensalism, which is where one benefits and the other has no impact. That's like a bird building a nest in a tree. But what you just saw was parasitism, where one pathogen basically just uses the other organism for its own benefit. In this case, the fungus using the ant to, to, to spread itself even further into the forest. It's, it's wild, and that's what they're trying to build on for this show. I have to tell you, when they told us about this segment, I was like, no way is Sanjay going to do that until I realized it's a real thing. It's a real thing. And now we actually kind of understand it. Thanks to your brain. (laughs) Sanjay, thank thank you. Go ahead. You got it. Thank you. Okay. No, I had the same thought initially when I heard about this segment, but then I started to dig into it. it's, It's pretty fascinating to think how these pathogens can potentially change behavior. Again, it doesn't happen in humans, not certainly yeah. like that, but it is wild to sort of dig into. They yeah. can't control our brains. He Thanks. is a brain surgeon. God, he is a Thanks brain surgeon. Brain, you Thank you. can you. catch the show on HBO and HBO Max. LeBron James looking to break the NBA all-time scoring record. Has this been stressful at all? The chase? <laughs> Will it happen tonight? We'll take you live to Los Angeles ahead more CNN This Morning to come after the break. Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Republican Congresswoman from Georgia, re-elected in November. She has pushed baseless QAnon lies and conspiracies that include saying that Democrats and celebrities are part of a Satan-worshipping pedophile ring. She has since tried to walk back her involvement in QAnon. She also questioned the events of 9-11, something she's also tried to walk back. The so-called plane that crashed into the Pentagon, 
It's odd, there's never any evidence shown for a plane in the Pentagon. There is an Islamic invasion into our government offices right now. Kennedy getting killed in the plane crash. That's another one of those um, Clinton murders, right? So she has pushed conspiracy that mass shootings were staged and false flag events, including calling a Parkland survivor a paid actor. She's engaged in anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim rhetoric over the years. She's compared Barack Obama to Osama bin Laden. She's apologized after comparing mask rules in Congress to the Holocaust before she entered Congress. Green also liked social media comments calling for the executions of Democratic politicians, including Nancy Pelosi, Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama. Her list also included FBI agents. She once posted a picture of herself holding a gun alongside pictures of three members of the so-called squad with the caption that she was going on, quote, offense against these socialists. In 2019 and 2020, she encouraged protesters to, quote, flood the Capitol and endorse political violence, claiming the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. And in the past two months, she has downplayed the insurrection against a symbol of American democracy, her very own workplace. And I want to tell you something, if Steve Bannon and I had organized that, we would have won. Not to mention, they would have been armed. See, that's the whole joke, isn't it? She says that she would have won the insurrection on January 6th with arms, the same insurrection she blamed on Antifa, and yesterday, in the same Capitol that was attacked, on that same House floor that was breached by many now-convicted criminals, Marjorie Taylor Greene sat in for the House Speaker and presided over the House, gavel in hand, the same House she says that she could have seized during an insurrection. A sad day for America. Here to discuss Adam Kinzinger, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, and Mondaire Jones. Good morning to both of you, having just heard that. Where's the lie? Yeah, you don't know where to start with that. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene has just uniquely kind of decided to take on every conspiracy theory imaginable. Um, it's, it would be funny if it wasn't so scary. Like, sometimes you look at the things that she says and you're like, this is just so out there. But this is a woman who doesn't believe basic facts about our history. Now in the speaker's chair. As I was watching the, that very good interview by Caitlin Collins with Comer... And I had to come out and say something because he is citing sources that, as credible that are not credible. He is talking about facts or something that's kind of flexible. Uh, and maybe you believe one thing and maybe another. Facts are facts. And this is where we are right now. Are you, uh, I, I wonder if you're happy to be out of it. I'm really happy to be out of there. Um, look, it's sad to me. I mean, I, I know Mr. Comer. He's a good guy. I, I was kind of surprised by this turn he's taken as the chair of the House Oversight Committee. You know, look, Hunter Biden's laptop. Maybe the FBI has an interest in that. His laptop was stolen from him and exposed to people, right? He's not in government. Yet this is the Republicans' number one thing this year. So look, my, my political analyst, analyst hat looks and says, James Comer this, Marjorie Taylor Greene is very influential in the person in the party. If I take that off and just speak as Adam Kinzinger, she's, what she says is, is what a lunatic says. It's finding every conspiracy and taking the trust of the American people. You represent 700,000 people, but you also have a voice in front of hundreds of millions, and you're telling them complete and utter lies for one reason, so you can be promoted in this low-paying job that you have in comparison to other things. And what about 
the line that has already been sadly crossed when it goes from just fringe conspiracy theories, you know, when QAnon was not widely espoused by some in power in government to actually being repeated by people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, you have years ago what happened in, the, in D.C. in the pizza shop and Pizzagate. And then you have what we're just reporting on today, which is these neo-Nazis planning this attack on Baltimore. It's not all the same, but lies lead to actual violence and can lead to death. Absolutely. I mean, these comments are not just made and then nothing happens in response to them. We saw an attack or an attempted attack on the city of Baltimore. Right. Well, it turns out a few years ago, Donald Trump himself in I attacking Elijah Cummings, who at the time was a chair of the Oversight Committee. And the city uh, itself. The city itself, a majority black city as, as quote, disgusting and rat infested and, a place, and rodent infested and a place where no one would want to live. Well, fast forward a few years, you've got a neo-Nazi and his, and his ally, I guess, attempting to disrupt life in the city of Baltimore. And I think for one reason only. Can I make a quick point? Yeah, so everybody, every day when you wake up, you have a battle in your heart between like, I'll call it good and evil, like light and darkness, right? You're out, you always kind of have to fight that. It is really easy to let the dark parts of your heart overtake your thinking. because you don't have to think too hard to do that. It's just like all your fear can manifest into how you act. When somebody in power and leadership stands in front of you and speaks out the dark parts of your heart, it gives you permission to let that overtake mm. you. That's why a leader's job is to not do that. A leader's job is to avoid the temptation to speak the darkest parts can, of heart. Can I ask you, you said, uh, I think, Don, you said, are you happy to be out of there? You said you're so happy. But that, just recognizing what that moment is, because you fought so hard yeah, against I mean, that while you were there, and realizing, I think, you couldn't change it enough? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's... To an extent, I'm sad that I don't have the ability to, to fight there. I'm personally glad to be out. It was 12 years. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's, you have to look at it and say, from my party, I don't think it's going to take just one person coming along and saying the right things. I think it's gonna, this thing has to burn its way through the party. There has to be a moment where people are like, this doesn't work anymore. There's a, listen, there's a similarity between us in that because when I was on the night show, every day was a night fight about you're wrong, this is a, whatever. And so this is, I moved here to, because I thought it would be, there's a different conversation you can have. But it's very easy, uh, as you said, this fight in your heart, to, to be lulled into the idea that, and to normalize what Comer said, or to what Marjorie Taylor Greene said, and that people actually believe it. The American people are going to have to deal with this for at least the next four years about what's real and what's not. And yeah, you were in the that's White where House you were in the White House and you said, don't be lulled into this sort of false narrative that Trump has been, that he's different because he's been investigated. You said that that's BS. Well, and we were talking backstage of how many Republicans and former government officials we know who we you know, we're honest, decent people, and now we see them doing things that are so performative and they know better. And, and Comer, I would put into that, to that box because he said, Donald Trump's been investigated for five years. Well, two years ago, he helped incite an insurrection on the U.S. Capitol. So, I mean, the, the offenses to investigate Donald Trump for seem to continue every day. The idea that there's some sort of, like, date of expiration on it is absurd. And, and I really like the point that Adam made because this is a crucial moment for our country. At what point are people going to put doing what's right for this country ahead of their own political ambition or their own, you know, future ambitions. It feels like so many of these people, whether it's a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Lauren Boebert, they're like running for their cable news gig, not to actually serve the people of their districts or the people of the country. It's, it's, it's terrible. And it's good. We're going to look back and be like, what are we doing?
So then what, what do people do? Do they step away like you? Do they step away like you? Do they find a different route to tell the story, to tell the truth? I mean, what the beginning, honestly, is having conversations with people you disagree with. Like, Mondaire and I, we're, we're on different sides of the aisle, but let's talk about what a Democrat and a Republican could potentially marginally agree on. I think it's also incumbent upon the media to make sure that it is educating the public about facts, uh, which should not be in dispute. And unfortunately, because of changes in the media environment, you've got too many networks in this country focused on pushing the same lies that you see from even James Comer, um, to say nothing of Donald Trump and other people who are like him. Can I say that, you know, the Bible says you can't point out a speck in somebody's eye when you have a plank in your own. Mm -hmm. There is real benefit, whoever you are, to, to recognize your own issues as well, right? So let's say this, this Chinese balloon, every, every you know, Republican is saying, in essence, Biden needs impeached over this, which is insane. Well, let's also look at the Democrats back when Soleimani was killed. Their knee-jerk reaction was to say, we shouldn't have killed Soleimani. We're going to start World War III in the Middle East. Well, recognize that. I'm not saying that as a, just as an attack, but like recognize, look, our side has had some inconsistencies. But right now, I got to tell you, the Republicans own this inconsistencies thing. I mean, standing in front and literally saying lies and conspiracies, not as opinions, but as facts, mm -hmm. it's very destructive. The struggle is for giving it a platform yes. for me. But the people need to know. So. Yeah. What do you do? That's right. Other that's, way, a struggle. that's a struggle in my heart every morning. I kid you not. I swear. What do, what do I give platform to? What do you give voice to? And what do you do in, in that position? Well, we are grateful you're here. Well, I mean, well, it's not about me, but they, I think Thanks everybody for... here is facing Well, the, you said coming thing. off the night and yeah. doing the mornings, yeah, yeah. and people need to hear yeah. that voice. So thank you all. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Thank we got to go. Yeah. We got to get to the top of the hour. Thank right. you. I appreciate thank it. You. Good to see all of you. We'll be right back. Good morning. Time is running out to find survivors in the rubble of the deadly quake, the one that's taken nearly 5,000 lives so far in Turkey and Syria. CNN is there. Madam Speaker, the President of the United States. We're live on Capitol Hill, where tonight President Biden will deliver his State of the Union address, what he'll focus on and who will be in attendance. One topic the president will likely address, the spy balloon from China. A new CNN reporting reveals why the Trump administration apparently did not notice spy balloons over the United States during their term. New this morning, Ukraine hints at the ability to strike Russian territory, another significant escalation in the nearly year-old war. Also here on Capitol Hill today, a hearing into the nationwide travel issues, including the near miss between a FedEx plane and a Southwest flight that came within 100 feet of disaster. CNN This Morning starts right now. We are going to begin in Turkey and Syria, where countless people are still trapped beneath the mountains of rubble. Dramatic video shows rescuers pulling a boy out of a collapsed building by his feet. That's in Syria. The Syrian white helmets say hundreds of families are still buried under debris from yesterday's catastrophic quake. The death toll has now topped 5,000 people. Search and rescue teams have colossal, a colossal task in front of them. There are thousands upon thousands of collapsed buildings like these to dig through. Freezing temperatures, powerful aftershocks have slowed down rescue efforts and made the situation even more dire. 
Straight now to CNN's Nick Payton Walsh, live for us on the ground in Turkey near the disaster zone. Nick, what's the latest? Yeah, you can see, Don, the sign for Kakamara Marash behind me. The town hit closest to the epicenter of this startling tragedy that Turkey's simply just getting its head around at the moment. Now, this is one of the major problems about getting aid. The road ahead of us, part of it's missing because of the damage done by the quake, and that's causing a delay in getting urgent aid, get urgently getting people out, frankly, of some of the areas. We've seen the road here jammed with people getting out, in fact, on the sides of it. Because of the appalling weather, people have been in car accidents, but startling numbers here. We've gone from 24 hours ago, a few hundred, to now over 5,000 dead, over 20,000 injured. And as I say, the weather, a real problem here. Now it's relatively clear and sunny, but we've had intermittent horizontal snowstorms coming at us here and you can hear sirens now on this road we've seen three four ambulances rushing past we think that's from the epicenter town uh, impacted that we're not far from but this is across the border of Turkey uh, with Syria a consistent disaster the town of Hatay significantly hit further east as well Diyarbakir hit too and that is inside Turkey which has declared a state of emergency for three months in the area's worst hit but it's across the border in Turkey, uh, in Syria. You do have to remember that they don't have the same infrastructure, the same rescue resources here. They've been beleaguered by uh, years of war. And now the UN is saying they're going to have to slow down or halt temporarily the supply of food aid. You can see the extractors. We've seen a constant, uh, a constant stream of excavators trying to get people out. Another ambulance here coming behind me. Part of this effort wherever you look, frankly. See the urgency that they push themselves through the traffic. This is the problem, really, because it's the delay, it's the damage done, it's the weather which is making it hard for Turkey, reasonably well-versed, prepared for something like this, to be able to get the people that it needs out of the rubble fast enough. They have a small urgent window here, particularly for children, particularly for the more fragile court under the rubble of the thousands of collapsed houses that Turkey is just beginning to get an idea of now. That window gets smaller and smaller. Uh, and the temperatures are far from a friend here, the bitter enemy they're fighting. Don, Polly? Nick Payton Walsh, live on the scene for us in Turkey. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate that. And as we continue to monitor that, tonight President Biden is set to deliver his second State of the Union address, his first, though, with a GOP House majority. The president is expected to focus on his accomplishments and the path ahead before a divided Congress. And a Republican House Speaker, who is going to be sitting over his left shoulder, that is determined to block his agenda. White House Communications Director Kate Bedingfield previewed the speech earlier last hour with Don. We're going to hear from him tonight about the things we've accomplished in the first two years that are making a difference in people's lives. 12 million jobs created during President Biden's first two years in office, historic low unemployment, wages going up, uh, investments in our infrastructure, our roads and bridges, uh, historic gun safety legislation. So, yes, uh, the American people are going to hear directly from the president tonight about what we've accomplished in the first two years, but also about the path forward. And Kate Bedingfield said we should expect President Biden to also address police reform along with domestic terrorism, the rise of hate 
in America. You know, Don and Poppy, often the State of the Union is one of the largest audiences that a president gets when they're in office. It's a moment for them to really talk about what they've accomplished. And we were talking about that ABC poll recently, that ABC Washington Post poll says a lot of Americans don't uh, feel that Biden has accomplished that much. The White House will be trying to change that tonight. You can kind of see their priorities reflected in who the guests that they're bringing are going to be. Don, as you mentioned earlier, the family of Tyree Nichols is going to be there, the Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S., Brandon Sy, who disarmed the shooter in Monterey Park, Paul Pelosi, among those notable names you'll, be, you'll see sitting there. On, and on the China front, uh, in that Zoom with Brian Deese yesterday at the White House, I was told you can expect him to speak very clearly on China because, Caitlin, I asked the White House, after the balloon incident, has his position on China and any economic policies, et cetera, changed? And they were very clear how firm the president will be. So we'll see if they've updated that in it's draft. It's interesting to see how much influence that balloon has had on uh, the I culture know. and on politics just over the last couple well, of days. Well, James Comer told you, Caitlin, it's what everyone's talking about. Yeah. Also, Caitlin, uh, the families who are impacted by police violence are invited to the State of the Union as well. Uh, they were invited by the Congressional Black Caucus. So this is going to be uh, probably more, many, more topics than in recent history to be handled by a sitting president who, quite frankly, doesn't have a, a very good approval rating, especially when it comes to the economy right now. And we'll see how there's a balancing act between um, when you talk about police reform, uh, he wants to probably keep the police unions happy, people who are at home who are concerned about uh, crime, but also people who want police reform. So that's going to be a delegate dance that he is walking tonight, among other things. Yeah, and often you see by the end of the speech, they mention a lot of topics because they want to make sure they get everything in, of course. <laughs> We're going to be watching it all here. We'll all be here on Capitol Hill tomorrow. And Anderson Cooper and Jake Tapper are going to be hosting live coverage tonight of President Biden's State of the Union address. That starts at 8 p.m. Eastern. Well, new this morning, residents of Grand Forks, North Dakota, are worried, very worried about Chinese spying, and they cheer a vote by their city council. Watch. All those in favor, signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed, same sign. Motion carries unanimously. That was a unanimous vote by that city council to pull the plug on plans by Fufeng, a Chinese company, to build a corn mill in the city. The battle between residents and local officials raging for more than a year. Some were concerned about deepening economic ties with China. Many others speculated the facility could be used for spying on an Air Force base less than 15 miles away. Last month, a top Air Force official weighed in on the resident side, calling the Fufeng project, quote, a significant national a significant threat to national security the city council vote coming right on the heels of that suspected chinese spy balloon shot down by u.s air force well tonight nba fans are eagerly awaiting the lakers game against the oklahoma city thunder hoping to see some thunder from lebron james because he might make history tonight lebron is only 36 points away from becoming the nba's all-time leading scorer that's insane for one individual to be on the brink of being the all-time scorer in the NBA history and also top five all-time in assists. And he's not a point guard. You know, uh, it, it is it's truly remarkable uh, for that to be accomplished. And, and But it makes it weird for me when I think, dang, it's actually me who, who's doing it. That, that makes it weird on me. Has this been stressful at all? The chase? No. 
because it was never it was never a goal. It was never a journey. Um, you know, the stressful part for me is competing every single day to try to bring home the Larry O'Brien Trophy. There you go. CNN's Omar Jimenez live in Los Angeles very early this morning, especially in the West. Omar, good morning to you. Listen, um, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We don't want to jinx anything, so fingers crossed. But you know as well as anyone, 36 points, that's, you know, in a game for LeBron, he can do it. Yeah, I mean, look, for someone like me, I'd be lucky to have 36 career points in the NBA. For LeBron, (laughs) this is something he has done before. He's averaging 30 a game. He went for 46 last month. So anything is possible here. But look, this is one of those once-in-a-generation milestones, if they even come at all. LeBron wasn't even born the last time this record was set by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And he's even said, LeBron has even said, that this is one of those records you don't think or believe will ever be broken Yet here he is, and for good reason. We're talking more than 38,000 career points at the highest level of basketball over 20 seasons in the NBA. And a lot of people think it's going to happen tonight. Take a look at the ticket prices. Tickets are going for or reselling for hundreds of dollars in the way, way back. And then if you want to sit courtside, we are talking tens of thousands of dollars, up to $75,000 just for the chance to see LeBron make history against a non-playoff team at this point. So people are coming to see the King again, potentially make history. All right. Omar will be there watching. Poppy will be watching from Love that he got that assignment, Omar. Thank you. Well, coming up after a blockbuster jobs report, should we be worried about a recession? And does it mean the Fed's going to need to hike interest rates even more than expected? Next, we're joined by one of the Fed presidents who gets to make that call. Neil Kashkari is here. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. You don't have a recession when you have 500,000 jobs and the lowest unemployment rate in more than 50 years. So what I see is um, a path in which inflation is declining significantly and the economy is remaining strong. What recession? That was Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen saying the probability of a U.S. recession is low this year after the U.S. economy added more than half a million jobs in January. A shock to pretty much everyone, including our next guest. So does that blockbuster jobs report mean the Fed needs to hike interest rates more? Let's ask someone in charge of that. President of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve, Neil Kashkari, one of the Fed officials who gets to make that call. Good morning. Good morning. So does it mean that? Does it mean you're going to have to hike more aggressively, maybe longer? It tells me that we still have more work to do. We're not seeing much of an impact of the hikes that we've done over the last year yet showing up in the job market. We want Americans to find work. We want their wages to be strong. But right now, the labor market, the job market, is actually too hot. Mm -hmm. That's going to make it harder to bring inflation back down. More work to do. Translate that to Main Street means... More More rate hikes than you thought. More rate hikes, or at least uh, holding them at a higher level for longer. How high? Well, I've uh, penciled in going as high as 5.4%. I'm a little bit on the higher end than some of my colleagues. Uh Ultimately, the committee will deliberate, look at the data, and make the call, but somewhere above 5%. 5 5.4%. That's where where you're at. That's where I am. Um, Okay, so the Biden administration, Biden will no doubt in the State of the Union tonight tout lower inflation. A lot of your colleagues at the Fed see it that way. You don't see it as optimistically. Is the Biden administration wrong? 
No, no question. Headline inflation is down. That's the prices we pay for food, for gasoline. No, wage growth. Uh, but wage, if you strip it along, there are different components of inflation. There are some good signs, like if the prices you buy for goods are coming down, which is also good news. Mm -hmm. uh, but the wage growth and the services part of the economy is still very, very strong, very hot. You know, you, I got in an airplane yesterday to fly from Minneapolis here to New York. Guess what? The planes are all full. I know. Like the services part of the economy yeah. is really tight right now. Okay, let's talk about inflation with this. We brought props. Okay. Thanks to our team who went to Whole Foods. This is how you think about inflation. <laughs> this is lasagna. It's not the Stouffer's that you it's have. The, the this Stouffer's. is like a fancy Rayo's lasagna. Yeah, that's a... But talk to me about shopping for lasagna and what it tells you about inflation. Well, I do the shopping. When the pandemic hit, I started doing all the shopping for my family to keep my family safe. I yeah. would mask up and go out, and I've continued doing the shopping. So I pay attention to grocery prices. And so there's this large tray of lasagna that I used to buy that used to cost $16. Now it's around $21. That's my own little measuring stick of how inflation is going. Uh, I love to see the prices of the food that we buy every right. day come back down. And eggs and orange and juice. Eggs. And we're not peaked yet. Well, it depends. Some of, the, some of the prices have come down. Eggs has some unique things going yeah. on in the, egg, in the egg market. But the prices are still very high. The prices of fruit, the prices of vegetables, mm -hmm. the prices of meats, they're not as high as they were. Um, recession. Uh, not only did Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, sound very optimistic, the head of the IMF told 60 Minutes on Sunday night, Kristalina Gergeva, um, the IMF now doesn't think the U.S. is going to fall into recession. Do you think the U.S. is going to fall into recession? I'm not forecasting a recession. And here's the thing. The job market is stronger than I expected, which means it's less likely we're going to be in recession. But it also means it's less likely that inflation is simply going to fall back down to 2% the way we need it to. And so it's a little bit of a mixed signal. That's kind of a weird way to live, isn't it? I mean, we haven't had something like that before. Is it possible that we could get inflation down without a significantly cooling labor market, or is that impossible? I wouldn't say it's impossible. I think we, we want to achieve what we call a soft landing, which is a gradual return to 2% inflation where the labor market cools a little bit, but where we avoid a recession. There's not, but to be honest with you, there's not a great track record of pulling that off. And that's no. what we're nervous about. We also haven't had um, an economic situation like this before. A lot of it caused by a pandemic we haven't seen before. So it's sort of all new uncharted territory. That's exactly right. Uh, okay, let's talk debt ceiling, right? Not a fun topic, but a really necessary one. No doubt it'll come up tonight in the State of the Union. Secretary Yellen has again really warned about this, writing that letter to Speaker McCarthy a few weeks ago, essentially saying, Congress, do your job and raise the debt ceiling. She says if they don't, there will be economic and financial catastrophe. Um, how concerned are you? Level one to 10, 10 being the most extreme of a, of, a, of a default in June. Well, a default would be a catastrophe. So I absolutely agree with Secretary Yellen. I'm hopeful that the political leaders in Washington, the White House, the Treasury Secretary, Congress will come together and come up with a solution. It's not for the Federal Reserve. We have no ability to affect this. Right. It's up to the elected leaders to come together and reach an agreement, and they need to. Brian Moynihan, the CEO of Bank of America, told me yesterday on this program, Bank of America is, and I think every you know, CEO is preparing contingency plans for a potential default. Do you think it's more likely this time around than 2011, 2013? You know, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to gauge. You're the not protocol. more worried, given this situation in Congress. Uh, 2011 was also uh, quite fraught, I think, politically. And it, I just, I'm not a, I can't read the political 
signs well enough to know, is this more dicey than it was in 2011? Yeah. But the stakes, are, the stakes are what Secretary Yellen said. That high. Let's end on this. There's a lot of debate over whether it actually makes sense, even though Congress has <clears> the first <throat> strings, for Congress to control this. Do you think the debt ceiling with Congress controlling it should still exist? Well, again, that's, that's for the elected leaders and the voters to decide. Congress decides how much they want the executive branch to spend. And so it's a little bit unusual that they would tell them to go spend this money and then not give them the tools. But that ultimately is for the elected leaders to reach an agreement on. Minneapolis Vice President Neil Kashkari, thank you. Thanks for I'll having me. You can take the lasagna for the <laughs> okay. kiddos. It's frozen. It'll last. Yeah, hopefully I can take it on the plane. You can. Thank you very much. We appreciate it, Don. Thank you both. President Biden defending the decision to shoot down the Chinese spy balloon. He has been facing criticism for his response from lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. Senator Tim Kaine joins us live with his take. That's next. We did the right thing, and there's not a bad question of weakening or strengthening. It's just reality. President Biden says the U.S. did the right thing in shooting down the Chinese suspected surveillance balloon. He maintained he always wanted to bring it down as soon as it was appropriate. Joining us now to talk about this is Democratic Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia, who is a member of the Foreign Relations Committee and has just announced he is running for re-election in 2024. We'll talk politics in a moment, but I know there is that all senators classified briefing on the surveillance balloon on Thursday. What questions do you still have? Well, I think uh, finding out what China is up to, the earlier instances of balloons over the United States during the last administration, um, how we put the dots together to figure this one out, what intelligence we collected from the balloon, because once the Biden administration realized it was there, we did things both to block it from gaining access to our information, but also to try to gather some intelligence from the balloon to figure out what China's up to. And then obviously anything that was recovered or has been recovered, what does that tell us about Chinese plans? The president says he doesn't worry that this weakens U.S.-China relations. Do you think it does, though? Well, it shows the strain in the relations. I mean, look, it, it, it was incompetent, uh, inexcusable, but very poorly timed because China, by all accounts, was really looking forward to the Secretary Blinken visit. They have significant economic challenges. Um, they want to maybe do a little bit of a reset in the relationship with the United States. And then this incompetent you know, bungled effort kind of blew up in their face. And it shows the strains in the relationship. But, um, but look, the U.S.-China relationship is probably the most important bilateral relationship in the world for the next half century or longer. And uh, we want to figure out we're going to be competitors and adversaries in some spaces, but are there areas where we can cooperate? We have to have communication to figure that out. And we know President Biden will be speaking about China tonight in his State of the Union address that he's giving here on Capitol Hill. It's a very important address for any president. It's one of the biggest TV audiences that they get. What do you think is important for him to say tonight? Well, I think it's important for him to uh, just demonstrate American strength. And I think that it's not just words, the actions of the last year. Remember last year, the State of the Union happened just a few days after Russia invaded Ukraine. And what President Biden has done is assembled a global coalition of democracies willing to stand for Ukrainian democracy against an illegal invasion by a dictator. The message of that is not lost on Xi Jinping. The democracies of this world are not bystanders. They're not... Uh, on their back foot, they're, they're able to link arms against um, dictators and certainly against dictators that are contemplating invasions. And I think President Biden needs to 
demonstrate the resolve of the United States, but also our ability to forge alliances that are strong. One thing the White House also wants them to talk about are their legislative accomplishments. And they certainly have had some, but a new Washington Post ABC poll showed that a majority of Americans don't believe he's achieved much since taking office. Why is that? You know, Caitlin, I think there's still a COVID hangover. I mean, a million people died. And in that same time, we've had economic challenges. We've had an attack on the Capitol. We've had two impeachment trials. We've had racial justice protests driven by really horrible instances of, of violence against folks by police. And just, it, it's been a very, very difficult time. And my experience, I'm almost 65, is that during challenging times, people are a little bit wary about letting their hopes come up. Uh, and, and, and they're a little bit slow because in a time like this, they don't want to have their hopes dashed. But what you've seen is President Biden not only achieve legislative victories, but victories that are making a difference. Prescription drug costs coming down for seniors, job growth that's at record levels, record low unemployment, manufacturing back and booming. I see this all around Virginia. And a commitment to American infrastructure and research that's been unparalleled probably since the Eisenhower administration. So I think as I go around Virginia, I think people are starting to get the hang of it. They don't yet see everything that they want to see. They're, they're, they're wary about getting their hopes up. But I think what President Biden needs to do is emphasize the wins, but say, you ain't seen nothing yet. We got more to do. Well, and he's expected to announce he's running for re-election soon. You know very well how brutal the campaign trail yeah. can be. How important is it for his delivery to be, to be forceful, to be vigorous tonight, to show voters that? I, I think it's important, and I think it will be, because I think he has a lot that he can... Uh, promote that we've gotten done. And the good news, Caitlin, you mentioned he has some legislative wins. With the exception of the um, American Rescue Plan and the Inflation Reduction Act, the wins, infrastructure, chips, veterans bill, gun safety have all been bipartisan. And so what he can say is, look, folks, I spent 36 years in the Senate, then eight years as vice president making deals, including making deals across the aisle. This is what we need in this country right now is people who are willing to work together. And I know how to do it in a way that uh, nobody else can match. And we know Kevin McCarthy will be the Republican House Speaker over his left shoulder tonight. Senator Tim Kaine, thank you so much for joining you us bet, to, to share your perspective on Glad this Glad to be this with morning. you. Thanks. Really appreciate your talk. I am so excited. Are you for this next story? This oh, next yeah, guest, a nine-year-old? I'm excited <laughs> I'm about that so interview. I'm so excited Caitlin about that interview. The, no, this, this is an he is an academic wonder kind. A nine-year-old just graduated high school and has already started college. And David Balagoon will join us next. Smarter than us. <laughs> Me, for sure. Definitely. <laughs> Well, this well, is what I was excited for. Our next guest dream is to become an astrophysicist. He's taken the steps toward that dream. He has finished high school in under three years with a 4.0 GPA and has already finished a semester of college. Here's the oh kicker, though, gosh. okay? He's nine. That is him. In addition to becoming one of the youngest high school graduates in the country, David Bagaloon is a member of Mensa, of course. David and his parents, Rania and Henry, join us now. Oh, my goodness. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, David, how's college? <laughs> Good. <laughs> what, what was it like graduating from high school at nine? Well, 
everybody started talking about how this is an incredible accomplishment. And I was thinking how all I did is graduate. And then my mom's saying, you, yes, you graduated at the age of nine. And, I, and then I say, yeah, I graduated. What's the big deal? <laughs> you graduated at the age of nine. <laughs> so what is the big deal? <laughs> so what is the big deal? Do you know what the big deal is? Or is this just normal to you? Like, it, you no. know? It just comes. You just, f for me, you just do it. Yeah. So, Mom and Dad, what did you do? Because every parent watching is going to be like, well, wait a minute. What did they do and what am I doing wrong? So, did you do anything special, you think, or different that put, puts David ahead of the pack? Uh, I what? think you just have to listen to your child and uh, get outside of the box. Uh, he was the one that leading the charge. He's the one that was motivated. I just had to... Uh, break out of the box and think outside of the normal schooling, think outside of uh, what people know and what I know uh, growing up and uh, just give him chance to be and do what he's dreaming to be and do. Well, what do you mean by that? Because we're going to say, like, what specifically? Sorry, yeah, go ahead, Dad. Go ahead, Dad. In addition to that, there are so many factors that we saw very early when David was growing up and uh, he is the type that is very curious about everything. And uh, everywhere we went, he always asked, what is this, what is that? And then if you explain and you use big words, he will want you to break it down and tell me what does that mean? And when he comes with me to my clinic, I have an outpatient psychiatric clinic. When he comes to me, I mean to the clinic, he always asks questions. Uh, why do you do this as opposed to doing that? And uh, what does this mean instead of, you know, and you have to explain without explaining, if you know what I mean, because mm -hmm. you still have to pay attention to the requirements of the law. We keep patient information mm. highly confidential mm. because of the HIPAA law. And so. I still have to break it down for him. I never, I never said to him, shut up. Yeah. Or go and no. do something else. No, I will take the time to break things down. Dad, I'm going to just make this point with Poppy, because Poppy and I were talking about it, and you as well. When um, I talk about when I was a kid, my, my mom would, like, make, pull me back. I'd go talk to people. Yeah. And my dad would say, don't make him afraid of people. Yeah. Let him be curious. And you do the same thing with yeah, your kids. I you do. don't tell them no. I Let try to say curious. we can't do that now, but what else could we do? Right. Present options. Hey, David, what do you what do you yeah. want to be when you grow up, David? Well, there are a few things that I want to be. An astrophysicist, <gasps> an engineer, a nuclear chemist, yeah. a software developer, a rocket engineer, and a website design. A website. Nothing like it. Well, I was going to say ball player. That would be great, too, right? He yeah. has all kinds of skills. I'm sure he can do it. Um, hey, David and, and Mom and Dad, we have a surprise for you. Okay, are you ready? 
So okay. one of the world's yeah, yeah. most famous scientists wants to say hi to you. Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson is here with us. Hi, Neil. Good Whoa. morning. What do you want to say? Are you serious? Hey, everybody. Hey. Hey, David. Good morning. Hey, Good morning. how are you? Yeah, yeah. Hey, Hi. Uh, David, I was nine when I decided I wanted to be an astrophysicist, except I was still in fourth grade, okay? So, <laughs> in case you didn't know this, it is unusual to be entering college at that grade. But the greatest value to knowing this early, what you might want to do, looks like you're giving yourself a few options there, and that's great. The greatest value is you can align decisions related to your life to feed that interest and curiosity so that by the time you become a professional in that world, your whole life has been invested on that path. And then you'll become better at that than you would anything else you can imagine. So, uh, so I'm especially intrigued that you know what you want to be when you grow up, but you're kind of already grown up. So I don't even know what that means. <laughs> 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 David, is there anything is there anything you want to say to the great Neil deGrasse Tyson before we gotta go? Well, we are really blessed to have you talk to David. I mean, he has read so much about you and heard so much about you, and uh, every time he sees you on the TV and uh, doing something somewhere, he's always impressed. Well, Dad, let him and talk about to it. talk to you. Let him talk yeah, about it, Dad. Talk about your theory. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Dad. Go ahead. Go ahead. How do you feel? My theory? Yes. Go ahead. How do you feel? So, I've created... So, I was in my Earth and Science high school class, and I created a theory to refute the Big Bang Theory. So we love new ideas. The main <laughs> thanks. Go on. So the main part of the theory is that matter cannot be created or destroyed. According to the Big Bang theory, the little I guess you'll call it ba ball cosmic egg, something like that. It was infinitely dense. Now, in order for it to be instant, infinitely dense, it has to be constantly creating matter. Oh, my gosh. Wow. But in order for it to constantly be creating matter, it would have to violate the laws of physics. And since we're technically talking about the universe, not all the space outside of the universe, then the laws of physics should still apply. Okay, so wait, Neil, is he... Thing. Hang on one second, because we, we have to go. I'm sorry, David, because we we're just out, out of time. I don't mean to be disrespectful to a nine-year-old graduated college and is explaining that how he refuted this. Uh, Neil, is he, is he schooling you right now? But we got to run. But can... <laughs> so we love new ideas that challenge our previous ideas. So in the end, David, what you have to do is come up with a way to test your idea. Mm. Yeah. Then we can then hand it over to people with telescopes and space probes and this sort of thing. And then we can see if your new hypothesis about the universe is correct. Right. That, that's, how, that's how we do that. Uh, that's how we roll wow. on the frontier. This, we roll, we have time, we have to deal with time issues here and get to breaks and pay the bills. We're so happy to have all of you on. David, best of luck to you, mom Thank and dad you. as well. Neil, 
Thank you. It was very kind of you to come Very kind of you, Neil. My day has been made. Yeah? Go ahead, Neil. My podcast is coming to the Keswick Theater in Pennsylvania at the end, uh, in, in outside of Philly at the end of uh, March. So I'll be delighted to offer your family some tick tickets oh, for that. That would be that great. Would be great. That would be amazing. Yeah. Thank, Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. We'd love to meet all, all of you in person, have you all come on the set. David, keep us uh, abreast of, of what you're doing. Good luck. Keep killing it. Thanks. Have fun. Right. Yes, have fun, too. Have fun, too. Don't forget right. to be a kid, right? <laughs> yeah, have fun, too. What Up a next, great thing. AMC Theaters will now be charging ticket prices based on seat location. Details on the company's new policy and what it'll cost you. Maybe we should have talked to David about that and see yeah. if he got his thoughts on that. <laughs> So it's back to movie theaters, right? Just as Americans are getting back to the movie theaters, AMC, the country's largest movie theater chain, is rolling out a new way of charging for tickets. Say what? Moviegoers will soon have the option to pay more or less depending on where they choose to sit. So joining us now, CNN's business correspondent, Rahel Solomon. So wait, what is this all about? Right, so the movie industry- Exactly. Premium seating, essentially. The movie industry is still trying to find that secret sauce, that it factor that gets people back into theater. So they've been trying different promotions, trying different ideas. AMC now is saying that depending on where you sit, that'll determine your price. So if you want that best seat sort of in the middle of the theater, well, you might pay a premium for that. But if you are willing to sit in the front row, maybe withstand a bit of neck pain to look up at the screen, well, you can save a bit of money there, and then the rest of the seats will all be the traditional price. Why are they doing this? Of course, to add to the bottom line, to sort of increase the average ticket price, right? Because the industry is still not where it was before the pandemic. So the hope here is that it adds to the bottom line, but it is also not without its risk because you could turn off some consumers. One research analyst who follows the company very closely told me, look, he is cautiously optimistic, this comment coming from Mike Hickey of Benchmark Company. He told me he is cautiously optimistic that dynamic pricing could provide an aggregate ticket pricing boost, but we're also concerned that it could damage the movie-goer experience. Is Nicole Kidman going to do a new AMC promo about this? That is that all I, I want to know, answer? and that is for our teammate, Andrew. I don't have the answer for that, but what I can tell you is everybody is talking about this idea. Would you pay more oh to God. have a good seat? Would you producer's looking I at do. me like, did I get it wrong, Annie, or I something? It was right. Okay. The <laughs> seat is right on my couch. <laughs> No, but it's not the it's, no, yeah. go I, to the I, movies. I love going. I love it's going. About, okay. <laughs> I'm just messing with you guys. Thank, Thank you, Rahel. Yep. See you All soon. All right. Van Jones is here live as oh, we begin no. the countdown. Don't listen to him to the State of the Union. Van's like, what? Oh, he's here in person. Yay. <laughs> there he is. You look particularly beautiful, Don. We're talking. Do you want to tell them what you were asking? I was asking where our flower arrangement is. <laughs> <laughs> Van is our flower arrangement. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Tonight, President Biden will take the stage for a second State of the Union. Joining us now, senior political commentator and former special advisor to President Obama, Van Jones. Hi. Hey, Hi. good morning. What um, are you looking for? Uh, well, first of all, as you guys know, and, and Don, you're the same way, I'm happy to criticize Democrats, even though I'm a Democrat, happy to praise Republicans, even though I'm a Democrat. Uh, you aren't going to have to fake it tonight if you're a Democrat. Uh, Joe Biden is going to be able to talk about a record of passing legislation that is historic. Um, when you're talking about the biggest investment in climate ever, when you're talking about getting something done on gun safety, if you're talking about marriage equality, when you're talking about uh, bipartisan stuff on infrastructure, 
there's a bunch of great stuff that he's done, but the American public is really not tuned into that. Uh, Americans are still, I think, you know, sad about uh, a bunch of other stuff. So he, he, he has a great case to make tonight. I think he's going to make it. So yeah, I don't know if you saw my interview with Kate Bettingfield uh, at the White House. And I asked her, I said, why, why do you feel Americans aren't getting the message? And I said, is it the communications department as a president? But also, is it us as well? I probably was remiss in not asking yeah. if it's the media as well Look, while I'm asking her about that. right? It, 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 there is real bad news to talk about. Uh, people, there's economic pain that's still out there, but the hangover from COVID is still real. Inflation has been, been tough. Listen to all the, the police st- stuff that we just went through. So there's reason for people to be sad. But guess what? There's reason to be glad, too. Uh, the thing is starting to turn around. America's government actually has been working on some of these problems. And I think sometimes we're almost scared to be happy. We're almost scared to hope. Right. And I think tonight we should start to turn that around. Yeah, like keep wishing. I feel like we keep wishing a recession upon yeah. 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 the country. Let's, Caitlin, you're there. You're previewing yeah. the State of the Union. Yeah, we're here. And Ben, I'm curious what you think is going to be different with the dynamic looking so different. I mean, it's just going to look different with Kevin McCarthy being over President Biden's left shoulder instead of Speaker Nancy Pelosi. That dynamic is what I'll be watching tonight. I wonder what you make of it. You know, it's going to be very interesting. Does Kevin McCarthy want to signal to the American people that he's a grown up, that he's there for serious business? He had a great meeting with President Biden. Does he want to follow up on that? Or is he going to start trying to play to the cheap seats? Is he going to try to signal uh, to the base that, hey, I'm going to roll my eyes a bunch. I'm going to huff and puff a bunch. I'm going to tear up the speech like Pelosi did. What is Kevin McCarthy going to do tonight is going to be a big part, I think, of the theatrics. And then also, uh, you're going to have a bunch of conservatives who are sitting there uh, you know, from the less constructive part of the Republican Party. They're thinking, hey, if I throw a paper airplane or a spit wad or do something nutty, I can get famous tonight. And so you're going to have a big dynamic where you've got you people have been rewarded like Marjorie Taylor Greene for being unconstructive. Are they going to show out? Is Kevin McCarthy going to scold them? Is he going to, what's going to happen with the Republicans dealing with what I think is going to be a strong speech from a president with a strong uh, track record to run on? What about who is going to be there? You mentioned earlier in the show the Congressional Black Caucus van has invited um, not only will Tyree Nichols' family be there as a guest, but other families of victims of police violence. I think that's really, really important because the one thing that President Biden has not been able to get done, despite the incredible track record, is to get something done on police reform. Right. He did the executive order. Frankly, his executive order matches a little bit with Trump's executive order, but everybody knows the executive order is not enough. you got to get legislation done. That is the one undone and, piece of business. Yeah. And I think the more pressure on that, the and better. Cory Booker said this weekend that he and Tim Scott never stopped talking. So yeah. maybe tonight pushes that's that a, forward. That's a tightrope. Because he has to appease the progressives in his party who want to, say, defund the police, although they don't talk about that uh, anymore. That's not what President Biden has ever said, and it's not a, a, an initiative for the Democratic Party. Uh, the people who want police reform, law enforcement, he's got to, you know, walk that 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 tight line and also um you know people who are concerned about crime yeah quite frankly it, it, the, the reality is they got very very close uh, uh and tim scott and and cory booker and karen bassley just couldn't get the last one percent of it done um given what's happened uh with tyree uh, i think there's a reason to go forward also uh you do have um uh, tim scott who maybe wants to run for president this could be an opportunity for him to step up and show some leadership you never know mm-hmm. yeah. thank you um well, we look forward. And uh, like I said, if if uh, if if Biden had swished on everything and wasn't able to give a good speech tonight, was going to have to spit a bunch of nonsense, I would say that he's got good stuff to say. Mm-hmm. You can be happy tonight. Tune in. Is he going to talk about? Uh, we have just a couple seconds here. Truth. Mm-hmm. 
like having a shared reality and what facts are, because that have been truth challenged. I, I, I think there is a, a shared reality you can talk about. A lot of the stuff he got done was bipartisan. It doesn't have to be a negative partisan yeah. speech. He can brag on the other party for helping him in the past and talk about how we can go forward together. This should be a good speech tonight. All right. Van Jones, thank you very much. Caitlin, we'll see you tonight and tomorrow, so make some room, squish the chairs over for us there. <laughs> I'm Washington. warning you. <laughs> it's a tight squeeze over here on the balcony on Capitol Hill, so and, get ready. And it looks a little chilly. Thanks, Caitlin. We'll see you later. And thank you, everyone, for watching. We appreciate it. Have a great day. We'll see you later on tonight for the State of the Union. CNN Newsroom starts right now. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.